We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, trading in my rolled up magazine for a microphone. <laughs> well, uh, the question goes to you, Cam. What are we talking about this week? We are wrapping up the Bourne franchise. We covered all the films a little while back, but we want to do a roundtable the way we did with the Brosnan era of James Bond and look back at the franchise as a whole and break it down to the elements, all the various aspects that make it so special. And of course, this does mark the the day of release of this episode marks the 20th anniversary of the release of the Bourne Identity. So I thought as a in celebration of that momentous occasion, we would we would put this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a perfect timing, and uh, we'll of course also have an interview out this week with Nick Ignade, who uh, played the assassin, born fought off with a ballpoint pen. That'll be dropping later this week, so it is an all-around celebration of the Born franchise. We are born again. Mm. That will be the first of many puns. But this is a big project to tackle five films in one episode. So to do this, I've had to activate our best assets. Firstly, joining us, zooming and enhancing on a monitor near you, film and TV editor extraordinaire, it is Ashley Lynch. Hello, Ashley. How are you? Hey, guys. How's it going? I'm happy to be here. And her backup. He's taken his blue and green chems. It's the host of Behind the Stunts podcast, Mr. John Orty. Hello, sir. Hello to you all. How are you doing? Very well. We are both thrilled to be here. We uh, we actually have some experts for once, which is is nice because we don't know anything. Oh. Uh, but I, I suppose before we get to the born of it all, let's get to know you both a wee bit better. So um, let's go with you first, Ashley. I mentioned it in your intro, film and TV editor. But you know, what's what's sort of a little bit about you? What you do for work? Yeah, I'm an editor. I work in film and TV. I work on whole scores of productions, but the biggest thing that I've worked on probably the last five years is uh, I'm one of the editors on the Lego Ninjago series. So I make Lego minifigs to have martial arts fights together, which is uh, fun and fantastic. And the new season is going to be rolling out, I think, later this month, uh, which is one of the most epic seasons we've ever done. So. That's really exciting. Uh, and aside from that, I've also got uh, another podcast that I'm regularly part of um, called Girls on Pop, which you can find at atcpod.ca, where we just talk about movies and stuff, which comes out semi-regularly. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes below. But I'm interested just to sort of explore the, the filming and editing, because I think, and we'll get to that in a little bit, because I think Bourne as a franchise has a lot to owe it to its, to its editing. But, Very um, much so. Yeah, definitely. 
but in terms of your connection to to spy films uh, in general like what what are sort of your favorites that you go to uh i think my favorites have got to be the mission impossible series uh i i just really love what those films are doing even the ones that are kind of like outside of like the general trend of you know the entire series like john woo's film even though that one is like a little bit of a dumpster fire it is absolutely my kind of trash and it kind of hits that sweet spot of like it's got the action it's got the intrigue it's like it balances everything really well in creating this perfect package that doesn't get so ridiculously mired in lore uh, which I think could be a problem for some of these movies sometimes. And I think that's probably my go-to for like spy action adventure type films. There is some there is some good connective tissue between the Mission Impossible films and the Bourne franchise. I actually have a little note about later. So that, uh, we'll come back to that. So that's good. You like your uh, spy action adventures, and I think we're, we've definitely got the right series for you this week. John, mm. what about you, sir? Um, well, I suppose my love of spy movies really started with Bond, and then on the uh, on the back of that would have been Matt Helm. I liked the Matt Helm. I thought Dean Martin was wonderful um, as as Matt Helm, primarily because um, rumor had it at the time. I didn't know until much later on, but rumor had it at the time. But he was up three sheets to the wind, you know, whenever he filmed <laughs> these things. Uh, when in point of fact, he actually he was he'd got the the apple juice routine and was just very very good at what he did. Now some of his television stuff later on, he was actually four sheets to the wind. I think by that time, but the Matt Helm movies they're great fun. Um, they're great fun action. Um, they've got some daft dialogue, great score, music scored. So they kind of I loved all those. The Flint movies I loved all of those as well. Um, and I suppose really. Um, they they were the kind of they were the kind of movies that got me a lot. I mean, once I saw Bond, everything else was was uh, was just a, a, a an element of that. You know, there was Bond. It's that umbrella. There's the Bond, and underneath mm-hmm. that umbrella, you had all of these other franchises going left, right, and centre. But you know, I I, I agree completely there in, in connection with the the Mission Impossible movies, which I which I love very much. Um, even. I can't do it. No, I was going to say even the John Woo one, but, but, but I can't. <laughs> uh, I've got so many issues with that movie, I can't tell you. But uh, but the, the the idea of that movie itself, that that concept there with with um, the longevity of it and the the way it just throws the kitchen sink at absolutely everything. Uh, and if you compare it, of course, to the TV show, it's it's like chalk and cheese, you know. But um, it's still huge fun, and I, I I love a love a good spy flick. And you know, we we did you a disservice there. Of course, you are the the host of Behind the Stunts and your YouTube channel as well, the podcast. Mm. You have a deep rooted love of stunts. I mean, I've spoken yeah. to you. We 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 had a pint together in the pub and spoken all about. This. We've met in public. Yes, there was Ugh. people there who What's saw us together. Yes, <laughs> there's no photo evidence. Oh no, there is. One. Oh no, damn. there is. Yes, absolutely. Damn, there is. Yeah. damn, damn, damn. But if um, you want the negatives. You still have to make that payment. I'm sorry, but there we are. That's the way it works. <laughs> Handle it. <laughs> um, but you know, of course, one of the two, and, and this is the reason why I, I, I wanted to get you both together on this episode is because editing and you know how you make a picture is a very important thing in the Bourne series, but also fighting, stunts, action is the lifeblood of the Bourne franchise, and it is the lifeblood of, of what you talk about online. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the um, as good as any individual stunt performer is, as as good as any disciplined fighter is, regardless of what their background is, regardless of what type of fighting you're doing, as good as any actor is who can remember routines, can remember choreography, um, can improvise or, or be given the choice to improvise in a scene, those fights are terrible if the editing is no good. Uh, absolutely crucial. They work hand in hand with each other. Um, and I suppose, you know, if you go back to the early days of cinema, it was often a locked off camera and it was a, a wide shot and, and people going from one side of frame to the other, throwing haymakers in three minute fights. Whereas now, you know, you might have 90 seconds, which is a very long time, but you may have uh, 90 seconds of full on action. And at the end of it, you are exhausted because the, the editing has enhanced the whole thing. Um, and I think it's it's massively important. So your fights themselves, oh yeah, they, they have got better over a period of time. Uh, experiences that they take little bits from here. That's what all the guys in the Bourne pictures do. They take elements of this, elements of that, and they put it together and they, that's nice. This is different. Let's do this. They bring in actors or fighters who are good at certain areas. But if the editor isn't doing his job properly. It's just a lousy fight. And I think the proof of the pudding is definitely in the eating with this series, whereas the fights are top draw right the way through. And you sit there and go, oh, a fight's coming. I can watch this. And you'll sit down and watch it. That's what I do. I was having a conversation with a guy earlier who's, who um, was was saying that he, he has to watch the whole movie. He can't watch elements of it. I could, you know, I've got DVDs of, of just fights, or just car gags, or just horse stuff, because it, 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 I'm transfixed, firstly by, the, by the, the, the action that's happening on screen, but also by the editing, and the way in which the editor then says, what can I do to improve this? This fight's a bit slow. I need to pace it up a bit. I know, I'll do this, and then I'll cut to this, and then I'll do that. And oh, that's a, all of a sudden, it's much, much better. It doesn't take an awful lot, but it does make a huge difference. And I think these are great examples. Well, it's clear that we've assembled the, the the pros, the best assets in the game to talk about Bourne. And the first question I'm going to ask everyone, except for, I suppose, Cam and I, because we've gone on record, is your initial connections to sort of the Bourne franchise. Because Cam and I are often found running along the beach in cargo shorts. <laughs> Obviously. Just, uh, yeah, it's just what we do. But um, Ashley, over to you first. You know, before we approached you, I'm sure you'd seen some of the Bourne films. But you know, mm -hmm. what were your thoughts on them? Uh, I've always enjoyed the Bourne movies. Um, I think, like a lot of people, when they first came out, uh, or when the first one came out, you're like, "Wait, Matt Damon's doing action adventure? The squeaky faced boy from, you know, Saving Private Ryan and and." Um, Oh, what was the one that he did with Talented uh, Mr. Ripley? Yeah, Talented Mr. Lip Ripley and uh, Goodwill Hunting stuff like that. It's like you thought of you thought of Matt Damon a certain way, good enough actor, sure, but action star? I don't know about this. But there was enough other elements there. You had Doug Liban directing, and I really liked what he did with Go. And you have Franca Patente, who I will always show up for. Um, and uh, Clive Owen, smaller role, but mm -hmm. still he was coming off hot stuff of like uh, croupier. And it's like, okay, well, this looks this looks interesting. 
and you watch it and it's just a legitimately good action movie it sucks you in and i think it's kind of telling that the first movie actually didn't do that great theatrically but what it was one of those movies that once it hit home video once it hit dvd it did so well and sold so well on dvd that that was enough to convince universal to keep going forward with the series and then the second one comes out and the numbers are just through the roof and now it's like a full-blown franchise that they're into so but i've i've always really been into the uh into the films i think it stumbles in various places but i think it's a really cool franchise that has a great hook at the center of it and a really engaging way of trying to tell the story What's interesting, too, about that first one is that it was such a problem production as well mm. with Doug Lyman not working particularly, you know, very well with the producers and there was a lot of conflict there. And the fact that, you know, when it got that confidence burst on home video, they were like, you know what, we can try to get something out of this. Like a lot of studios would have been very content to just be like, you know what, that was not a great experience. It did great. We broke even all's good, let's move forward with something else. But <laughs> yeah. the fact was they saw that spark there and enough value to continue to go back. Well, and it's the weird thing about this franchise, isn't it? Where it's like the third movie is kind of like that too, where it's like the screenwriter just basically just like screwed <laughs> off, like handed in a treatment and then basically just went for a walk. Yeah. And they piece together a movie out of nothing. And the movie's good. It shouldn't be good. They shouldn't have been able to make a good movie out of that, but they did. And it just seems par for the course that like even the troubled movies that they make, they can manage to make something that's cool out of it. And what about you, John? What was your sort of initial connection to the Bourne franchise? Um, I saw it at the cinema in, when it came out in 2002. And for me, it was certainly the best action film of that year. I thought um, Blade Two was pretty good. Mm, yeah. um, Attack of the Clones I quite enjoyed um, and I was fairly familiar with the books uh, I, I um, uh, Robert Ludlum I'd, I'd, um, I'd got Holcroft Covenant which then I saw as a, as a film but it was made earlier but it was a, a movie with Michael Caine and the Osterman weekend of course with uh, Rutger Hauer which was one of his as well but uh, again on the, on the point made there um, casting Matt Damon you go, really, Matt Damon? But he is so impressive. Uh, he really is. He, and has um, an extraordinary quality on screen of, of a much, even in, the, even in the first picture, of a much older, experienced actor. He turns up the screen and you can't take your eyes off it. I mean, he really is sensational and continues to get, I think anyway, gets better and better with each movie. Um, so his development of the character, um, whether that was directly in connection with, with Doug Lyman, I'm not sure, but, but certainly his development of the character over time, um, makes it for great viewing. And I, I personally, you know, uh, if it's, if it's not Matt Damon, it's not a Bourne movie. Uh oh. Uh oh. You know, sorry, Jeremy sorry. Renner. However, <laughs> however, sorry, Jez. But um, I think that um, it's tricky to watch anything else that is born orientated and he's not in it. You know, so I, but I, I think that um, 
you know, we all did the same thing. All these, these, he's written a movie, he's got an Oscar, you know, he's spent all of his time with uh, Ben Affleck. And if you look at the two careers beside each other, um, Matt's absolutely soared, you know, and Matt's had his ups and his downs and his sideways and all sorts of over the... But, but Matt, I think, is terrific, and I think this is a, a real clincher for him, a real moment where you can see that, that this is where it started. It, it also seems to have helped that it appears that he was like hungry for this because it was not a genre that he was in. No, no. So I think he came into it knowing that he was going to have to prove himself to a certain degree to an audience that might not be accepting of him as an action hero. And because he hadn't done it and wanted to do it, he was really hungry to like get in there and nail it. His, his versatility, I think, is the, is the key to this because certainly over, as we've experienced over time, what he does is he doesn't really mind what the role is. He's quite happy to take something that's a bit left field. He's quite happy to take a comedy. He's quite happy to take a serious role, you know, and still give it 150% and still be the, the guy who's delivering you know he's read this line and this line is funny and he's going to tell you that it's funny in the in the in the, in the on the screen or in this take he's going to bring you to tears because that's the way he sees it and he's very very good at doing that um i think he's terrific i really do and i, I think this is a, a great example of of him making a stand and going look and 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 the the production team you know you've got you've effectively got the two major producers from the indiana jones movies going look this is our new this is our new harrison ford if you will this look what we did with harrison now look what we're going to do with this guy and they've sent him on this incredible journey i think it's brilliant absolutely fabulous it's also like a couple years after you know nick cage has started doing action movies so the idea of casting like serious actors in mm. these types of roles has gained more and more popularity as we've phased out more of the Arnolds and the Sylvester Stallones and the Bruce Willis's as the action heroes. Yeah. And I think that was one thing they actually had a lot of faith in was Matt Damon as an actor. What can he do with this character versus we're writing an action figure? Can you please, you know, slot in your characteristics and just call it a day? They were actually looking at him at organically building a character from the ground up. He's not, he's not Schwarzenegger. He's not seven feet across, you know, mm. he's not Stallone. Um, he's not a Van Damme. He's not a Chuck Norris character. He is a very, very good actor, just on the basis of the, the, the fact that he was a very good actor on the basis of this particular product. I was just going to say, it really feels like the logical end point of the entire evolution of the action hero out of the 80s through the 90s and into the 2000s. Because you had, of course, the 80s where you have your Schwarzeneggers and your Stallones and it's all like um, bodybuilders are basically your action heroes. And people got tired of that. And in the 90s started looking for new forms of that. And it started basically started with Die Hard and Bruce Willis that it started to become the everyman. And then that's how you end up with like Nicolas Cage of all people dominating the 90s and the action adventure uh, genre. And I think it really feels like the logical endpoint of trying to find out who that action hero actually is, is landing at Jason Bourne. Mm. That feels like it's final form in a sense. I was also going to say, just in terms of Matt Damon, I think one of the things he does really well is wears his heart on his sleeve, especially in these films. He's like that wounded mm. animal the whole time and, and you feel for his the plight that he is going through. And I think that helps that he was a, more of a character actor and in a lot of dramas before that, that, that sort of acting chops came through. And it's something that 
you can really chart the course with these films a little bit of what was happening in Bond, because obviously when Pierce Brosnan came along, it was the Bond with that was was more of an emotional Bond, and Pierce, Pierce didn't get get it to go exactly where he wanted it to. Unfortunately, the end wasn't where anyone wanted it to end up. <laughs> but you know, I I think that the Bond sort of picked up that baton obviously changed action cinematography and action going forward, but allowed there to be a vulnerability to your lead. Yes, uh, certainly. And I, I, I think that's, they, it's interesting that they bookend each other, that, that Pierce's Bond, which came out that year, um, is, you know, invisible cars and, and tsunamis. And yet Jason Bourne is right in the now. You know, this is covert ops. This is the everyman. This is a guy who finds out that he can do the most extraordinary stuff. hasn't hasn't a single clue how he can do it, but he, he but he does it, and he does it really spectacularly well. And you go, wow, this guy could—that's the bond that we should have had, you know. So it's uh, it's interesting that they've taken that and run with it. Well, speaking of hasn't got a single clue, I'm going to throw over to Cam. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you um, marvelous link I, yes uh, you're welcome <laughs> that was one heck of a segue <laughs> um just yeah cam i i asked you to prepare this before but could you give us like a little bit of a rundown of how the born films did and sort of how we we thought about them and the knock list and everything yeah so the franchise you know it's a universal franchise has made about 1.6 billion dollars worldwide and when you break it down by numbers you know the most successful was Born Ultimatum, which made four hundred and forty-four million, followed by uh, Jason Bourne, which did four hundred and sixteen, and then uh, Supremacy, which did two ninety-one, followed by Legacy, which did two seventy-six, and then last was Born Identity with two fourteen. But like it was very much like a franchise that really built up, and its big moment was Ultimatum. Um, now, in terms of the knock list, we covered them. Born Supremacy was the only one we added onto the list. Born Identity became very controversial with people. That's the one we've heard the most about since the you know early days of this podcast. It was about Born Identity not quite making it. It came very close, but not quite. And Ultimatum was a battle where we had two guests on that episode, and it was a divided 50-50 battle over that one, which left it kind of just just off to the side a little bit. But uh, Jason Bourne and Legacy, uh, no. No, they didn't make it. <laughs> Not a lot of arguments there. <laughs> well, I, I suppose what I want to tackle then before we get to the best, worst, and why is just looking at the franchise and, and, and its importance to cinema. So, I, I mean, I, for me, I, and I kind of mentioned the, the Bond connection, which I'll get to in a second. But, you know, a lot of this film can be found in sort of the Tony Scott editing style that was... 90s noughties um but it's really pushed that forward but one thing i found quite interesting when i was looking at the timeline mission impossible 3 and casino royale came out in 2006 by that point we had already had born identity and born supremacy and a lot of people will say mission impossible 3 is where that franchise figured itself out and where Bond took a different turn and really, for a lot of people, was emulating a lot of what they saw in Bourne. And just from that angle alone, its importance can't be understated. It, it, it has clearly influenced at least two other spy action franchises, let alone action franchises as a whole. But I'll, I'll throw it out to everyone else. Um, John, how about you first? Well, it, I, it certainly is. I mean, it, it's important the way that 
um, the way that Hitchcock is important, or the way that Bond is important, as you said, Hitch and Bond sort of set standards. And you need characters like Bourne to come along and move those goalposts a bit, uh, be the hero, be the anti-hero, loved by everybody and hated by everybody, and, and then loved again. You know, they they need to be able to do that. Um, I think that um, you definitely get that in these movies, and, and and coming at everything from different angles is always refreshing. But most importantly, and I think this is key with what you were saying in connection with uh, the fact that you've got Casino and you've got the Mission Impossible movie had come out after the release of these initial movies, as, as I will probably touch on later on myself. But there's a great deal of intertwining of crew involved in all of this, whether it be second unit director, stunt people, um, other other individuals in the production. And they then move on to other productions, like Casino Royale, for instance, like Mission Impossible, and they go, this bit of business that we did here in this movie, that's nice. Can we adapt that for this? And they go, yes, we can, but we'll change it and we'll make it better. Um, you know, and they keep moving stuff around. And so you've got the character which has taken on that mantle of being the most important spy type genre, espionage genre that you that you then have because Bond had been doing it. And of course, Bond had a bit of a hiatus and then came back with Casino. And by that time, there's been a lot of work gone into Born Identity. It's got great set pieces along the way. People have gone, oh, that's nice. Oh, there's a nice car chase. I want to do something with a car chase. That, that hasn't been done for a while. And they try and do something in that movie over there. And then they take that fight routine. And that's a clever fight routine. Well, we'll try and move that into the, um, or something similar, into a Mission Impossible. And they, they keep moving stuff around. I think Jason Bourne, really, if you look at it on the sort of, the, the, the scale of things is right there in the middle, feeding off. There's lots of other productions and lots of other areas of film, of cinema, which are feeding off this character because it's giving out so much the way that Bond used to do in the 60s and 70s. That was the big the mantle, and everybody wanted a slice of that pie. Well, I think Bourne is doing a similar exercise in this instance here, and, and very successfully. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more on that. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at other franchises as well, like Taken, mm. I think it is very much has connected tissue with oh. the Bournes. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe not the sequels, but... Uh... <laughs> no, no, but there's certainly the um, the uh, the fighting style and the editing style, most certainly. Well, throwing over to you, Ashley, your thoughts on the importance of the Bourne, the Bourne franchise. Yeah, it's... Um, I think definitely identity was hugely important important and i honestly i think it's because it the entire genre had sort of reached this lull moment and identity comes along and all of a sudden adds something to the genre that the genre hadn't had for a long time or you know even particularly ever which is this sense of uh the sense of propulsion and kineticism um to everything both like driving the story forward but also the action uh, that hadn't really been part of these films before. And I I think, especially with Casino Rail, you don't get that movie without the Bourne films. And not only, like, especially when you watch, like, that opening scene in the construction site of Casino Rail, that's, like, straight up a Bourne scene right there. Mm -hmm. And that's very easy to see. But I think it's also the element of that the Craig films basically introduced a broken Bond in a way. It's like it, they focused in on like, here's how 
he's kind of like not complete as a person and he's operating out of a sense of having all of these flaws of being this incomplete jigsaw puzzle and that was never really there before especially with like the brosnan films it was like suave guy who walks in and cleans up the room and doesn't break a sweat yeah and the 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 Craig films completely changed that. And I don't think you get that without having the Bourne films, which are all entirely centered around the fact that he starts out as a broken character who doesn't know who he is and is struggling against multiple adversaries to find out just what the hell is going on and where his place in the world is. And that's like the central kind of emotional conceit that keeps the Bourne movies in place. And that starts to become a very large part of the entire genre as a whole going forward. You even see that in the Mission Impossible movies to a certain extent. The third movie that comes out, post-born movies, introduces the Michelle Bonan character, which creates like this incredible emotional um, focal point that even Chris McQuarrie is going back to and using in in the later films as well to create like here's this part where he was broken where he tried to have a real relationship and obviously his job can't handle it and now he just has to be this incomplete wounded warrior who's like cut off that side of his is of his life and he can't have that and therefore he's always going to be lacking and it uh the entire genre evolved i think uh, not just like in the action scenes, but also in the way we were telling these stories and the types of characters that we were using to tell these stories. And I think that's all due to Born Identity. And what about you, Cam? I think it's really interesting to look at how the Bourne franchise shaped Hollywood for a couple things. We can look at the spy genre, which I'll get to in a second, but I think you have to also look at like the Born Identity comes out one year after 9-11. And after 9-11... Hollywood was kind of reckoning with how to make action movies anymore that, you know, the Arnold model wasn't working and, you know, his like, uh, what was it? A collateral damage came out shortly. Yeah. Shortly after 9-11. And it was just like a flop. And it was like the world was not ready to see kind of this sort of, you know, over the top pumped up action. And one thing I think the Bourne franchise did very well that really tapped the zeitgeist at the time was acknowledging the consequences of violence with its character, where we root for Bourne, but he's also someone who's constantly looking at his past and some of the terrible things he's done. And when people die in the movies, it treats it with weight, you know, whether it's allies of his or even just some of the assets. Like, you never get the sense it's just kind of throwaway violence for the sake of violence. And that's something that I think you would see would shape movies like the, the Daniel Craig Bond films, as well as, say, the Christopher Nolan Batman films, where it was like, we can't quite do escapist violence the way we used to. The way we do that tends to fall into fantasy, which is why when you look at the years going forward, you had a lot of Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Spider-Man, all that sort of stuff was what really grabbed the mainstream as well in terms of action on screen. Whereas Bourne was sort of your adult thinking kind of franchise where adults could see some moral gray material. They could kind of, you know, it's kind of like thinking person's action movies. It gives you those thrills, but it's also doing it in a way where we're looking at it a little more seriously than I think we really were before 9-11. Now, in terms of the spy genre, I mean, we've talked about how it's shaped so much, but I think what's really interesting is the specific point in time, 2002. The Bond franchise 
I don't want to say it's running on fumes because the movies have been very successful. World However. is not enough. <laughs> However, yeah. <laughs> World is not enough. Big, you know, made a lot of money. No one was in love with it. Die Another Day would come out in 2002 and be um, polarizing at best with people and also kind of falling into the fantasy realm. They were almost like, we better embrace over-the-top cartoony stuff because people don't really want something maybe serious at the moment. Um, it felt like Bourne fought off kind of the people that were trying to take the throne of the spy franchises. You look at Triple X, which came out the same year as um, the Bourne Identity, and it was kind of remixing the elements of Bond, but kind of giving you the Bond experience. Whereas it felt like Jason Bourne looked at the spy genre and said, we need to shake it up completely. We need to do something, you know, things very differently than what have been seen in the past. You can look at stuff like the Ipcris file or some of the, you know, more serious, older spy films, but they weren't crowd-pleasing franchises. And they found a way to kind of merge those sensibilities with a franchise and really, you know, draw an audience in and make a lot of people look at the Bourne franchise as the premier important spy franchise of the time. And even when they would be doing things later down the road, like reinventing Bond or Mission Impossible would be coming back in a big way. I'll, you, if you look at criticism of the time, there's a lot of talk about, well... The Bournes are at the top. How do these measure up against those? It's it's crazy when you look at it, like in the spy genre. That I mean, I don't think people will, are are measuring up against the Bourne benchmark anymore. I think it, it had its its three films, perhaps potentially that were its its time in in the sun. Yeah, but it, it's interesting that for a while, Bond was not the benchmark. Yeah, and there isn't many times in history. Uh, after the 60s that that can be said yeah 60s and 70s i mean you 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 couldn't touch them with a barge pole you know I mean, they were absolutely on their own um and certainly you know that 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 early 90s period uh when the mission impossible started coming out and then you had um you had golden eye and tomorrow never dies and world is not enough i mean they were they were kind of trying to hold their own and they were doing exactly what they said they were going to do what Bourne does um, obviously after Die Another Day which went in that direction what you have is you have very similar characters Bond works for an organisation in this instance MI6 um, Bourne works for an organisation he doesn't know it can't remember it you know but the treadstone program or that whole deal is you know he's being worked he's being run by an individual the way that bond does uh from from a um backroom boys type of type of outfit so all of that is relevant the difference here is that he is issued uh bond is issued with you know gadgets gear good clothes all the other bits and pieces whereas born is constantly on the run Oh, he's running in a direction because he's trying to find out about him, not about you know the the villain at the end of the day. That ultimately will be will will sort itself out through the through the course of these pictures because you know there is an individual that is causing all of this issue in the first place that he has to get around to. But that you know they are very much still working in that situation. I, I was interested in what you were saying there in connection with um, Bourne not being the benchmark now. Where where else do you think these these um, where do you think the benchmarks have been since twenty sixteen? It's an interesting question. I think personally, I think with the Mission Impossible series, right. I would say that yeah. I would say that 
a lot of critics and stuff are looking at more of the John Wick films, which okay. are kind of a little bit spy adjacent. And even even something like Skyfall, specifically Skyfall. I, I, I mean, I think Casino Royale and Skyfall definitely brought a lot of eyes back to the Bond franchise. But I, I think it's fair to say that post-Goldeneye, there was a, a diminishing interest in some quarters of what Bond was offering because it, it wasn't really evolving. It was it was that good old thing that everyone likes watching. It's it, it's the uh, nostalgia blanket feeling, which is fine and it works, but it took Casino Royale to really change that. The, there's one element about these films that no one ever talks about that I think is fascinating. And I, I think you kind of like hit on it a bit where you're talking about how a lot of the other films that were succeeding in the marketplace at the time were like playing to um, over the top, cartoony, big, larger than life, entertaining the Spider-Mans, you know, whatnot, coming out 9-11. And the one element of these films um, that is like consistent throughout is the bureaucracy of it and the mundaneness. We spend an awful lot of time in command centers with people in front of computers who are being barked at to type faster we, we see we see shoe leathery stuff um of just like trying to like tap into someone's phone and finding out like what phone they're going to be on or you know uh triangulating where they are in the world that sort of thing so we can like get an asset up and get them over to there as we watch on a big screen in a darkened room filled with smoke hmm. and it's done in such a way that it isn't stupid computer stuff if you know what i mean like when you have when you have a lot of technology or lingo that gets displayed in a movie sometimes they will make it really stupid for the audience that needs to have their hand held these movies never do that. They don't care if you're tracking everything everyone is saying in those conversations. Just as long as you get the gist of what's going on, you'll keep up and you'll, you'll, oh, they're after Bourne. That's all I need to know. And they've sort of locked on to them. I've got enough information. But if you're following everything that's being said, there's just a bunch of people doing their jobs. And it's incredibly mundane. And a lot of these movies are centered entirely around that bureaucracy inside the CIA and treated in a very ultra realistic manner, not in the way that you would see in something like Bad Company, which right. makes it like flashy. It's not the way Michael Bay would present it. You know, where it's over the top and like the you can see the computer screens so bright that they're like reflecting off people's faces and stuff like that. It's it's not it's not heightened. It's played realer than real. And that was something that was like unique to these movies that they brought to the genre at that time. Well, well bouncing off of that, it's something that actually has just occurred to me. I can't pretend it's some sort of deep thought I've had for years. But when we're talking about spy movies and Cam and I have been doing this for close to two years now. There seems to be like two camps. There's the action adventures and then the serious spy stories. Uh, and there's a few that walk the line and then there's the comedies and things like that. But these Bourne films seem to walk that line between them beautifully because they are procedurals that you are watching the, the, the shoe leather, as you say, Ashley. And 
but you're also watching the action adventure stuff of Bourne kicking butt. And it manages to blend them both perfectly. So if you're ever looking for a, a sort of a, a, a spy movie that ticks all of the spy boxes, perhaps Bourne is your destination. Oh, maybe so. I mean, 30 plus years ago, if you had a similar type of movie that was trying, there would be, you know, a, a, a villain with a purpose and that purpose would be to send this rocket to that country and uh, blow it up or it would be to to take this particular piece of equipment which was absolutely essential to put into another invention that he created that would that would cause world domination or something or something whereas here it's it's a pen drive or it's just some it's a photograph it's a it's a scrap of paper it's something that allows Bourne to move on to that next part or to meet somebody who will then give him some form of recollection um uh and move on to that next section it's it is fascinating the way that those those scenes that are in the offices surrounded by the the computer screens are as exciting as you know the 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 physical action that you're seeing elsewhere well, there's a lot of zooming and enhancing. Oh yeah. But, mm-hmm. but speaking of moving on to the next section, I'm doing a I'm doing good connect tissue here today. I quite oh, like it. We're bowing to you, Scott. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's now, great work. <laughs> I, I've had a lot of coffee. Loving your links, dude. Loving your links. <laughs> um, now, one of the things I, I set you both a teeny bit of homework which was just to have a little think about the Bourne franchise in terms of your area of expertise. So I'm going to throw it to both of you. Uh, I'll probably go to Ashley first, just in terms of editing, film, and sort of the connective tissue between that and the Bourne franchise and what it did for cinema at that time. Yeah, I think I've, I'm going to jump to the sequels for this one because I think you really kind of get to the actual identity of the aesthetic of the Bourne films, once Paul Greengrass picks up the films, he basically creates like the visual language for what these films are and what other people attempt to often uh, badly replicate in other films. And there's something about Greengrass where he is able to get so much coverage and shoot it in such a chaotic way with the camera constantly moving and very quick heavy cutting um but you don't actually get lost and he is one of the few filmmakers that can actually accomplish this everyone else who tries this it usually ends up like a horrible mess but his films and i know there's a lot of people who complain about like how quickly they're cut or how much the camera is moving but I never found it a problem with these films. In fact, I considered it a, a benefit. I think it's a I think it's a wonderful aesthetic that he creates. And he seems to be unique at being able to do that. There was um I think it was in Ultimatum or no, it was in Supremacy. There's one scene I went through it because I was just like watching specifically the editing where the entire scene is just Jason Bourne goes to an internet cafe and does research on the internet to get a name and then leaves. Yes. Whole scene is like a minute 30. Not <laughs> a very quick scene. Not a lot happening. Dude walks into a cafe, sits down, looks at a computer, pulls something up, writes down a name, leaves. This could be something you could do in five, six shots. The scene itself had 49 cuts in it. 
it was absolutely crazy. The camera's zooming in on parts of the screen, cutting to close-up of Bourne. There are shots where it's a close-up of Bourne looking at the screen that cuts to another shot of Bourne looking at the screen. There's a cut to the same shot. This should not work. In terms of editing, this is something you don't do. This is like a bad edit. But it works. And it comes back to what I was talking about, but the, the propulsiveness and the kineticism that these films bring. And so you have this incredibly mundane scene of he sits down and looks at a computer, but the way in which it's shot and the way which it has been edited, which are both working in tandem, you have to have both those hand in glove or this does not work. You can't have just one department deciding they're going to go off on this journey. And the other one's like, well, let's play it straight. doesn't work. So, in conjunction, both of these departments are coming together to add this incredible intensity to a in horribly mundane scene that honestly, if it were filmed straight, you'd be like, why was it even in there? That was the most boring shit ever. And instead, it's kind of riveting and you're only catching those little fragments of what's going on, but it's enough to say, okay, I get what we're doing now. Even if I don't, didn't see everything, I'm feeling it and the way in which it's delivered, it's delivered with such, such a propulsion that I'm amped for whatever we're going into. And that's kind of the language that these, these films have done, especially from an editing level. And I think it's, uh, I, th I don't think there's really quite anything else that are like them. In theory, like a sequence like that of him at the computer could be the equivalent of like the Liam Neeson jumping over the fence in Taken 3, where it's like a laughing stock, but it's like in practice, filtered through green grass and just like given a propulsive style. It actually connects hardwires right to the emotion of the viewer. Like you're actually involved in the experience versus standing there passively being like, well, that looks garbage. Yeah, absolutely. And and that, that fence jumping scene is a great example. Um of not just like, I don't want to call it out as bad editing, but it's, Do it. it's, I show that clip to clients who complain that I've cut something too quickly and <laughs> I just send them the Liam Neeson, <laughs> Liam Neeson jumping a fence scene. And after that, they're like, okay, yeah, no, you're good. Um, <laughs> and they, they back off immediately. But, but also just from like a, what what we think of when we think of like bad editing in fight scenes is typically to cover for actors who are not didn't aren't capable of doing the fighting enough did not have enough prep time to learn the fighting yep. like you you only get the matrix because they train for 6 months before oh, sure. and most movies do not have that type of lead time going into a movie so unless you have an actor who has already been trained in fighting like if you have Keanu Reeves on a film already you know now then you've already got a trained fighter that you've cast in your film that's not always the case. And especially when you're doing stuff like TV, schedules are so freaking tight. You just go into it and you do the best you can. You shoot lots of coverage and you fix it in editing by having to cut a lot on usually every swing and every impact. And you end up with the exact same thing as Liam Neeson jumping a fence because he's like at that point, what, like a 70 year old man and he's like running <laughs> yeah. and scaling a fence. I guarantee you it was not that quick him climbing a fence and their way around that to make it look like he was doing a lot of action really fast 
was to just cut it up into 10 different shots with a lot of coverage. And that's the same thing you get with like action that does not, or fight scenes that does not look great. Well, it's interesting because I've been doing setups for the last couple of in-between bits, but you've just set me up perfectly, Ashley, to ask John <laughs> what he thinks the Bourne sort of franchise's impact has been on action and, and stunt work and things like that. Um, I'm, pro- I'm probably going to have to touch on, on each of the films as I go along, but the, sure. I mean, for, for, for years the, the argument was that um, Bond films had changed because of the way Bourne action was depicted and filmed. Um, and the truth is that the people who created the action for both are in fact the same individuals. I'll get to that later on. But the, the, the concept of the car chase or, or the, the, the fight hasn't really changed very much, but it's the ingenious way that they come up with this new slant. So if you look at Born Identity, which has two major set pieces in it, you've got the car chase firstly, um, and uh, uh, you've, the, you've got the, um, the, the fight in the apartment, the car chase. Well, the, the stunt coordinator is a guy called Nick Powell, and uh, his fight choreographer for the film was Nicky. And of course, you're going to be speaking to Nicky, aren't you? Or you've got an episode with Nicky. Um, and uh, the, the two of them, what you were talking about there a moment ago in connection with, with the fighting and editing, is that, uh, quite right, that, the, that the, the actor maybe hasn't had the same amount of time that they should have done in order to get this done correctly. So what's happening is that obviously fights are incredibly boring in certain cases to watch two blokes throwing haymakers at each other. But th- this this idea is to come at it from a different level, disabling the opponent with as many moves as possible using whatever he finds around the flat. Now, in this case, it's a pen, you know, and to convince the audience with the help of the editor that this is doable is is incredibly great fun to watch. And also, Matt Damon is incredibly good in this fight, but for this particular fight, wasn't there enough maybe to to pick up on some of those moves that that Nicky was trying to throw into the to the fight and so there are a great deal more edits from further away instead of having those those close-ups of of the uh, of the actors uh, going at it um a big french team involved here because obviously the what they did in the later pictures was they took European and American and uh, UK stunt teams and put them all together. Well, here we're filming in France. We'll use a French team. Now, ideally for the car chase, because the the, the everything reverts back to Bond. Well, the the, the car chase coordinator is a guy called Jean Claude Laguinet, who was the car chase coordinator, part of Remy Julien's team, who provided the action on a number of the Bond films. One of which, of course, was A View to a Kill in Paris. Uh, for Roger Moore, and he's the guy who doubles Roger when the car gets split in two during that chase. You never notice. You See, never notice that you know, stunt double. <laughs> he's uncanny, isn't he? Um, the uh, and the the mini is perfect for those narrow streets. Again, I think maybe they're trying to look at something from the Italian job: down staircases, tight turns. But supremacy changes tact, so they bring in they bring in bigger guns. Not that the French aren't big guns, but they're, they're, this production has got bigger based on the success of the previous one. They bring Dan Bradley in as second unit director and coordinator. Now, is one of the guys responsible for the action on uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, for instance. Lawnmower Man was one of his. Panic Room. 
second unit director on Quantum of Solace as well, so and, uh, and Spider-Man 2, which gave him a great deal of work with wires and the sort of early stage CGI, which the Bourne movies take. They take a great deal of use of wire work later on, um, and uh, uh, particularly in this, because there's a, a fabulous foot chase in this, and, and, uh, and Matt Damon jumping off a bridge, doing it for real. The way that later on, when Daniel Craig took over as Bond, that was the motto. Let's, you know, bring Bond back to order. Let's get him actually doing it for real on stage. Well, that's what they do here. He also brings with him his assistant coordinator from Spider-Man, Darren Prescott, in as the as the second unit stunt coordinator, and a new fight guy called Jeff Amada, yeah. who's choreographer with Damon Caro, another very good fight guy. Damon's got a Hong Kong background, and these four pretty much change the way that action fights are planned and executed. Jeff Amada brings a, a new style. It's a, Filipina, Filipino Kali, uh, which the credibly quick style, aggressive, very aggressive style of fighting, which allows Bourne to use more props, in this instance, a magazine. Um, and again, a, another car chase, this one pushing the bar even higher this time with the kind of d destruction that, that uh, we'd only seen before in movies like The French Connection or Ronan. You know, these impacts are unbelievable. They really are. And they are continually pushing the boundaries of having, um, firstly, Matt Damon in the car for a number of those impacts for real, but also having it on a rig and having a camera in and having a plate by him so they can spin the car violently. Um, ultimatum, same type of elements, but cranked up to 11. Um, that's... Can I use a Spinal Tap reference yet? There we go, I've done it. <laughs> go for Cranked it. up to 11. Um, and Born Ultimatum, technically, is born free, if you're a Cockney. Dan Bradley, again, uh, at the helm. But Gary Powell, who's then the coordinator on the, on the four Bond films that had uh, Daniel Craig. Um, and again, pushing, pushing the boundaries, particularly in Tangier. And that sequence there where you get... Lee Morrison brought in to double Matt on the motorcycle. Uh, Lee Morrison then going on to coordinate No Time to Die because he was a professional motocross rider before he became a stunt, uh, uh, stunt performer. And the foot chase is the key thing. That moment where Bourne leaves the roof and goes through the window and the camera goes with him. And that originally, they were using zip wires they were using uh, uh wire cams to get a great many of those rooftop shots but they found that technically the the the, the speed of the camera was overtaking um david leach who is the stunt double for matt damon in the roof jump david leach of course now full-time director deadpool 2 atomic blonde john wick fast and furious hobson shaw He's the director behind the started as a stuntman. The, the wire cam is traveling faster than he is. So um, Gary said to Diz Sharp, who's one of the stunt guys, would you be the cameraman? Uh, uh, yeah, okay. So he has to literally go with him and jump with him. And that shot is, that's the most, I think that's the most played shot from that movie anywhere. Um, and of course, a lot of the guys who worked on that all took it and did the rooftop chase in Quantum of Solace. Legacy changes direction, and I don't really understand why. Dan Bradley, again, 
um, as second unit director. And it's almost as though he said in this instance, well, let the cast do as much as they possibly can without us having to do as, as many physical stunts. And, and Jeremy Renner, for, for in comparison, what, what he brings to the role, although he's, you know, a different element to the, the, this whole story, what he does bring is the fact that he's a really serious motorcyclist. And that motorcycle chase in that picture, it, a huge proportion of it is him. Uh, and that does make, and he's doubled once or twice, that slide down the stairs, for instance, on the bike. Was the, the part where he fell asleep on the motorcycle also him? Uh, yes, oh. yes, the part where he falls asleep because he's not concentrated because <laughs> he's tired. Yes, that. Yes. Yes. And I, saying, I, is I it over that. yet? And can I go home, please? <laughs> um, I have to work on my app. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm really not bothered about this picture anymore. Um, I, I love how he does all the motorcycle stuff for that, and then he breaks both his arms on a movie called Tag. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in, a, in, in, in a freak beanbag accident. Yeah, exactly. The worst kind. <laughs> it is weird, isn't it? But they the, that was the one thing that Dan Bradley realized. He said... You know, we do a lot of testing with with um, with Matt. We put Matt in a car, or we put him on a motorcycle, and we say, "Can you do this?" And you say to an actor, "Can you ride a horse?" "Oh yeah, I can ride a horse." And they get on the horse, and the horse's head is behind them, and they're facing the wrong direction. And they go, "You can't. You've never ridden a horse in your life, have you?" Uh, "No, I'm sorry, I, I haven't." Say that to Matt Damon. He can he can drive a car. He's very good at driving cars. But when Dan Bradley said, "As soon as we put Jeremy Renner on a bike." You you automatically know. Oh, this we're in. We're, we are we are good. So a great deal of that stuff is is fantastic. Um, but I just think it lacks something that they then try and replace with Jason Bourne. You know, opening with their fight with a one punch and that's it, game over. They bring in a, a different coordinator now with Simon Crane, the second unit director, and Gary Powell coming in for for coordinating. And the two of them have worked together for years. Gary was Simon's right-hand man for many years on pictures like Titanic and GoldenEye, for instance. So all of these elements, you put everything together, and then they arrive at the most extraordinary car chase down the Vegas Strip. And they just pile on through it, you know, and really do change change the aspect of action. And, and those movies, I think, on them, themselves, if you put them all together, creating that carnage and making it look that good, and uh, it's mesmerizing, it really is. It's the way that that probably Bond was during those early periods through that early part of the 60s where you had the phenomena and people going, wow, this is amazing. Well, that, uh, this series of movies has certainly pushed that. And on the strength of the success of that, Tom Cruise pushes the boundaries just a bit every time. And it's all one-upmanship. Where it'll end, I don't know. It's it's interesting because I, I, I think sometimes we tend to get a bit siloed when we're talking about a, a film franchise and not not really contextualize it in a time and place but you know when you paint a picture that way and say how that these teams were sort of in, interconnected with the other franchises and that it was more like a collage of action films all working together and growing you can really see that actually and especially if you chart it against other films coming out at the time and I, I imagine a lot of these teams working on these films talking to each other and coming up with ideas collaborating yeah. with each other um it's actually a different angle I'd never really looked at it from. But yeah, I, I can definitely see how that has... Because uh, we said earlier how like, oh, Casino Royale took notes from Bourne. But it wasn't, maybe it wasn't that then. Maybe it was more of a case of they looked and thought, well, let's talk to those people and they worked together. Mm. 
I think a, a lot of that is the case. I think that that interconnecting between groups of individuals or somebody that is very very familiar here. We want to do this. This is what we want to do. Ah, well, what what does it say on the page? Well, it says this, this, and this. That's the shots we're trying to get. Well, have you thought about doing it like this? No, because I was going to do this, and they work it out together. It's a little bit kind of like the ragtag team that made Star Wars, the original Star Wars, how they filtered out and completely changed their industry and worked on a lot of movies that then people said, well, look, they're trying to rip off Star Wars. Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah we, we were the people that did that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the whole point. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, Scott, call in the Avengers, and I'm not talking about Cap and Hawkeye. I'm talking about Emma Peel and John Steed because we are going to do a commentary on 1998's The Avengers. Get into your teddy bear suit, people. And if that sounds delicious then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spy but before this message self-destructs cam resume the spy jinx right well next up on our round tables what we'd like to do is something called the best worst and why now we're not talking about bond this time so i've changed the topics but uh, i had some notes last time we did this we should have an order picked out so it's not confusing. So what we're going to do is every topic will either start with Ashley or John and we'll rotate each time. And then we'll snake our way back down to best and worst and back up again. Well, first up on the best, worst and why, we have the best assets. Now, this is someone, uh, you know, a, a Treadstone agent or a Lark's agent. Um, but I want to know your best and your worst and why so best first let's go with ashley um okay best asset um i'm gonna have to go with the professor because simply clive owen i love clive owen look at the guy also his regular day job when he's not activated he's like what teaching piano to kids <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's what Blofeld did, too. <laughs> like, I've always wondered about the logistics of that. It's like, okay, so does he only get paid when he's activated on assignment, and that's when he collects his CIA paycheck, and the rest of the time he's having to make do with piano lessons? Or is the only reason he can do the piano lessons as a career and actually, like, live is because he getting paid by the CIA? And that's where all his money comes from. <laughs> Probably the latter. But it's like, this is a little rabbit hole my brain goes down whenever I see him. He's like, I'm at a piano lesson with a child. Oh, time to go murder Chase and Bourne. I just, I kind of love the dichotomy of that. The idea that there's just like all of these people out there leading incredibly mundane lives. And suddenly now time to go be in a, a hired assassin. And I think that's kind of amazing. And also just like that that whole kind of cat and mouse on the farm mm -hmm. uh, between between him and Bourne. 
at the end of the first film, I think is legitimately thrilling where they're both trying to get line of sight on each other. And I think that's, that's just a great scene overall. Um, I really dig that. Well, firstly, I can't shake the image of uh, the professor just getting really frustrated. One of his students not hitting the <laughs> like an A seventh chord and just like, sod it. I'm killing this kid. That's it. <laughs> He pulls out a forty-five, and I said B flat, kid. <laughs> dun 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 dun. <laughs> uh, well, okay, so we've got one vote for the professor, John. What about you? What for asset? I, I, I've, I mean, I'm look, well, I'm looking at this from a different point of view, obviously. But I mean, um, Vincent Cassell's asset for me is just fabulous. Um, I think he's the best of the bunch. I think he's, I mean, he's he's a superb actor at the best of times. Um, uh, he's also a very uh, he's a um, a professional fighter as well. Um, so he's very convincing in in those roles, and um, he's just relentless. I mean, he's absolutely relentless. I was watching some of the behind the scenes stuff of the of the of the fights that they were creating in that uh, in that storm drain uh, at the end of the picture, and he is just throwing the kitchen sink at himself. Just to get himself into um, some sort of mental position to go right, I'm ready to do this now. And then Matt Damon starts to do the same thing, where they're banging against walls and you know doing this thing. They're just trying to get them, and then hitting each other, and then they go into the fight. You know, they're all they're all keyed up, and I think it's he's absolutely superb. Whenever I see him in any movie, I go, ah, here he comes. And you do, you tend to, for me anyway, I look at him and go. Yeah, all right. I'm perfectly happy. I know. I know that something appalling is going to happen to somebody in a moment, and he's likely to either be the instigator behind it, or he's going to get it himself, one or the other. But uh, it doesn't. When you see him on screen, you know that you're in for you're in for a good time, and he's he's terrific. He's very good. I can't shake the image of uh, Matt Damon and Vincent Cassell smashing their heads against the wall to get ramped up for a fight. Now I know Thank right that that does sound that sounds pretty good. What well, Cam? Who's your asset? I went with the professor as well. I think he just does a fantastic job setting the template. He feels different that there's more of an intellectual side, whereas Bond henchmen were always sort of, you know, your jaws, your odd jobs. Whereas the professor, dude in glasses, very good looking actor, very dignified. And he has that line of dialogue of, you know, look what they make us give, which then echoes back throughout the franchise. So I think professor is the most interesting one and the one they model all future assets on. I, uh, I'm i actually going to split the vote. I actually was going to go for the asset from Jason Bourne, Jason oh. Cassell. Um, I, I just like that he's like the closest to taking Bourne down out of all of them. And he's the longest serving of any of these brainwashed agents. He's actually longer serving than Jason Bourne. I think there's a lot of stuff he could have dug into there. I don't think Jason Bourne, the film, really digs into it as much as it should. But um, he's one of the only people in the entire series that actually has Bourne on the ropes. So I quite like mm. that. Yeah. Um, going back the other way, I will say my worst first. Okay. I have, well, he doesn't have a name. He's Larks03 from the Born Legacy, played by uh, Louise Ozawa Changchen. I believe that's how you pronounce the name. Um, so good. They couldn't think of a name for the guy and he gets offed very quickly by Aaron Cross. So if Aaron Cross can beat you, hmm. What Larks? I mean, he sounds like a, uh, he sounds like a like an eighties synthesizer, doesn't he? <laughs> I'd like the, the piano, though. or a, or yeah. a piano lesson, yes, or a cigarette. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Cam. 
I had the same one, Larks03. It's like nothing against the performer. It's just like he's kind of an afterthought. They call mm. in Larks like near the end of the movie. They're like, oh, we don't have an asset. Crap, we better call one in. There he is. And he doesn't really have any personality. I don't even remember how he dies. And, uh, you know, he's just very forgettable. Uh, so we have two for Larks. John, what have you got? Well, <laughs> and again, uh, just but from a from a, a a different point of view, but based on what was earlier, it, it, it might be um, it might be Clive Owen's character because of of his flexi job flexibility. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's a part time worker, he's is that what it is? You just guy. don't like, like it. They bring this guy in. They haven't even got somebody who's full time who's. You know, continue. I know that their 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 entire purpose is to blend in and not be seen, be the that invisible character. But for him to be very publicly, you know, a a teacher of children primarily, um, and to teach piano and to do all of that, and then to get a message to say you need to be at so and so because you need to kill so and so. Well, um, same time next week? No, no, not next week. No, no. Maybe come Tuesday? Can we do Tuesday? Wednesday better. Maybe when I can't do and all of these different logistical issues that come with with trying to balance two jobs. I'm I'm not quite sure. It's a good job he's self-employed. I would imagine doing doing this uh, uh, this tutoring on the side. But um, it's not really the worst uh, of him. But I just now that that seed's been planted, I can't see anything else. So uh, on the strength of that, I'm, I'm going to say him. They didn't do their DBS checks exactly. on the professor, I think. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 the insurance company did not do their due diligence. But uh, <laughs> Ashley, bring us home. Who is your worst asset? I have completely ruined board identity for John. <laughs> completely. <laughs> I've only hoped to see it again. Happy 20th anniversary, born identity. <laughs> um, I I think I'm going to have to sweep the board and say it's Lark 3. Uh, it's it's very much just like a plot contrivance that this guy is even in the film. It's like, oh, well, we've gotten to this certain point. We need to escalate things before the end. I know, bring in the super soldier. And the character has no personality. He has no real need to be there. He doesn't add anything to the film. Again, nothing against the performer. He's fine, but it's a nothing character. And nothing really comes of it in the film. And so it's just like, why, why, why is it even there? Yeah, and it how it gets introduced is so goofy. It's like, oh, well, we just went through this big to do where we had to basically suicide everyone in this program just in case some journalist find connects some dots and find out that it exists. So let's preemptively get ahead of this and just completely like clear the board. All these people now dead. By the way. We have another operation up and running where we have a super super born. You weren't worried about that. I, I don't know, it makes no sense at all. I I, I remain uh, steadfast in my opinion that to really appreciate Born Legacy, you have to take some chems. Mm. I'll leave that there. Well, you do hear a lot about chems. Yes, blue, green, red—they've got them all. Uh, so it looks like it's a joint. Best for the professor and the asset, and Lark03 is bringing up the rear. Over to antagonists. Now, this we've classified as people like Ward Abbott, 
Ham Landy. They're the people that are trying to get born but aren't necessarily out on the streets fighting the man himself. They're usually in the office saying something like, Jesus Christ, it's Jason Bourne. So we're going to go over to John. Um, well, my favourite, really, I think, is um, is Abbott. Um, uh, if anything, primarily for that line that he delivers, which uh, I, I think is spectacular. He says, uh, you're in a big puddle of shit, Pamela, and you don't have the shoes for it, which I think is wonderful. <laughs> I love that line. Whoever came up with that line is okay with me. I don't care what he does in the rest of the picture, but that was just beautiful. And you could see that Brian Cox was just eating the furniture, wasn't he? He was just loving it. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a very... Um, the character's many layers to it uh, as a character, but uh, he really does like to turn everything around on a sixpence. You know, when he when he kills that guy in the um, the steps of the of the um, um, just kills him there and then on the spot, takes him downstairs to go and see where the uh, where the charge went off. And uh, kills him there, just you know, and all of a sudden you go, <gasps> you know, because maybe I hadn't realised it beforehand, or but that was the moment when he's he's happy to tell everybody, yep, just in case you didn't know, I'm a bastard. And he'll have that, and then goes off, you know. And I think he's he, he really does enjoy it enormously. So he's he's definitely mine, my, my favourite. I think. It, yeah, he. There's a lot of people in these films that are out to get born because it's their job, mm-hmm. but. Brian Cox just seems like an actual evil person yep. in these films. Yep. And so, yeah, I, I, I completely yeah, understand brilliantly that. Brilliantly cast, exactly. Absolutely. Uh, Ashley, who do you have? I, I just want to say real quick that Brian Cox is one of those actors that you can hand, hand this like giant soup of run-on sentences to, and he will turn it into absolute poetry. Oh, so. It's like, the man is such a great actor. Like, when he just, like, gets wound up, I freaking love that. Yeah. However... My choice for best antagonist is actually going to be uh, Noah Vossen, played by David Stathairn. And I would almost go with Brian Cox's character because I do love him as a performer, and I think he's so good in these films. But I think just as an antagonist in the third film, I think he comes across as this perfect intersection of kind of just outright evil and... He's a company man and he's a true believer and he's dedicated to the cause and he is going to make sure that he is in a position where if anyone goes down, it's going to be the person who's under him and not him because he's a survivor in this industry that does not like people like him. Uh, And I think he plays that so well. He is such a bastard of a character in the third film and it, and creating this sort of dichotomy where you have the, the Pam Landy character basically squaring off against him, which makes her a bit of an ally. And I think it is, it is so interesting and I've always loved David Shatheran as a, as an actor. And I think he really shines in this. I'm, I'm going to pick uh, John's pick. I'm going to go for Ward Abbott, Brian Cox. I think he's just devious snaky I, I i like that uh I, I i can't stand the guy you know he's a villain cam what have you got well snaky is the operative word for me i went with conklin actually played by chris cooper in the oh. born identity who i think has so much reptilian menace and kind of hangs over the entire initial trilogy and i think just an actor like chris cooper could play the devil and you'd buy it he has that sort of 
sinister, seductive style, and I think is just, he kind of sets the template for me for born adversaries. And you've kind of got that sweaty man thing yourself. So. 100%. 100%. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stuff in common there. But going back the other way, Cam, who have you got for worst? Uh, the worst I had was Robert Dewey, played by Tommy Lee Jones in Jason Bourne. Um, you know, again, Tommy Lee Jones has a lot of gravitas, but I don't buy Tommy Lee Jones asking people about social media accounts. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about your reach. <laughs> I mean, you could make a comedy about Tommy Lee Jones, Clint Eastwood, and Kevin Costner opening a social media um, company, and that would be hilarious. Like, it's just ridiculous. As long as De Niro's playing the intern. I wonder what his clout score is. <laughs> um, I'm going to... Uh... Yes, I'm going to agree. Robert Dewey is my man. I don't think he knows anything about algorithms or reach. So uh, that's that. Two votes for TLJ. Uh, I believe Ashley is next. Uh, three for three. I'm going to go with Tommy Lee Jones and Jason Bourne. And it's not even just so much that like I don't buy that the old man cares about social media, even though I don't care or I don't buy that the old man cares about social media. But I don't think he's that interesting of a character. I think Tommy Lee Jones looks like he's sleeping through the entire movie. He does not look like he wants to be there at all. He's, he's very much going through the motions. And it all reaches to a head when it gets to this point near the climax of the film where I'm supposed to buy that the CIA director is going to a tech bro conference to be on stage with a panel <laughs> about social media <laughs> privacy he, he cleared his day for that i don't i i guess there wasn't a war going on anywhere so it was i don't i don't buy that for a second i don't know what the hell he's doing in this movie and john well i i can't really disagree with that my, my my issue is that tommy lee jones has just played tommy lee jones for about 30 years he hasn't really played a character all of these are tommy lee jones you know um but so i suppose from that point of view i have to agree with with everyone that he's the the the, the one that is probably bottom of the list. I, I would like to do an honourable mention, though, if I would, for somebody who's equally as pointless, possibly, is Keith Urban. Um, <laughs> his character doesn't really Wait, Keith Urban? To, oh, um, Carl, Carl Urban. Urban. Keith Carl Urban's Carl the country Urban. singer. I didn't say Keith Urban. Yeah, didn't he sing something? Um, I just wanted to mention Keith Urban. Not Carl Most Urban. Most musical Keith asset. Keith Urban, yes. Um, he's got an album, I don't know. Um, yeah. Yes, Carl Urban. Doesn't really seem to do a great deal apart from you know get himself all psyched up and then get killed. I mean, it's not you know he's he's one of those characters that, that right go and get so and so right and off he goes and then really disappointingly very quickly gets disposed of. So uh, from that point of view, he's probably the worst of the worst. But yes, I'll I'll say uh, I'll go with Tommy Lee Jones as the as the first choice. I don't know. I I make the same miserable face when I'm in a nightclub too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. Next up, it's Ally. Um, very important part of the Bourne franchise. It's the people that uh, that keep him going, that are on his side. There aren't many of them. We'll go to Ashley first. Uh, absolutely, I'm going to have to go with Marie, and that's because of my undying love of Franco Potente. Um, I saw Run, Lola, Run opening day in theaters. I was absolutely so blown away. I went to see it again the next night. 
And I've just been in love with her ever since. It's like a shame we haven't gotten more big performances from her. Uh, but I, I found really interesting, like they were clearly trafficking off of that with the board identity, because even when the when the trailers came out for it, they were using the music from Rolola Run for the trailer. So they're clearly right. trafficking on people's familiarity with that. Mm. But I think she's for the for especially the first film and for a little bit of the second film until she basically gets French. Um, she is the the heart and moral center of the film and even continues to be in the way that like, you know, John Wick's dead wife is through the through all those films, even though she has no actual presence in the John Wick film, mm. she remains an emotional core to the character that drives him forward. And the same way in the Bourne films. It's like, even when Franca Patente is not there, she is there. I still think that we were robbed of more. Um, yeah. Mm. Her getting off Absolutely. in Supremacy is too early. It's a silly choice. I, it always rubs me the wrong way when I rewatch the film. John, what about you? Oh, uh, I couldn't agree more. At the moment I saw... Um... Um, the moment I saw Marie uh, there in the consulate, um, you know, arguing with the dude behind the counter, I thought she was fabulous. And she continued that. Um, and again, you know, we, we've touched on this whole thing about intertwining sequences and bits and pieces and, and her death sequence. Oh, my God. Terrible. And it's just this this whole um, it's Casino Royale all over again. You know, mm. it's that that she's drifting away and it's underwater and she's drowned and it's just horrible. What, one thing I will say, uh, which um, we, we haven't really mentioned at any point, um, can I? Uh, or I'm not. I'm going to big up another music star now. I think Keith Urban's had his day. I'm going to say that. I'm not going to mention him again, but I am going to mention John Powell, yes. uh, whose yeah. music is absolutely superb. Uh, since uh, uh, re rewatching these pictures, I've uh, I've uh, downloaded a lot of his um, uh, his scores for these, and they're sensational. What a that opening stuff for, for Goa and uh, the, the stuff for Supremacy, marvelous, really very good. So that. The, the music in that sequence coupled with the the events of that sequence and, and losing Marie and uh, I did I felt I felt gutted that she'd gone because I thought there, there was there was certainly uh, there was more distance that could have gone with that but they they cut it short which was such a shame but she was terrific I really enjoyed that Cam what about you well I have a controversial one that I maybe need permission from the panel to see oh, if this even dear. applies oh, what's he doing no. oh no because pull up Cam I think I could make a strong argument that my favorite ally is Pam Landy in Born Ultimatum. Oh, I'll allow it. Okay. Uh, I will allow it because it's also my choice. Is it? Oh, ah. wow. Because, like, Pam Landy is obviously an antagonist in Supremacy, but also an antagonist who's been kind of misled and is figuring things out as she goes. So it's really... Oh, origin story for your ally about how they came to be on Bourne's side so when you get to ultimatum she's often you know giving him information yeah. and working along to help him at the end and is the one to essentially take down noah vossen and uh it seemed like maybe pam didn't have the happiest of uh results taken from just like the snippet you see in legacy of noah vossen apparently going after her for treason but nonetheless i think like joan allen is such a compelling character and i love how much of an arc she has over multiple films mm -hmm. well i think we're going to allow it it's also my choice so that's a split vote uh for the two strongest uh allies in this franchise but i'm glad it was both women mm. um as for worst john takes away worst well i don't know it's 
it's worst, but not necessarily worst as far as the picture was concerned. But I'm going to mention Legacy, um, and it's Daniel Craig's wife, um, which um, I don't know. There's something. I think she just gets. I, I didn't. I tell you what it was. If if I'm if I'm I'm, if I'm comparing Marie, I was I was with Marie the whole time, mm. and I'm with Nikki to a certain extent, um, because you know I think that she, I mean she she gives her life for Bourne, you know she makes that mm-hmm. decision, I believe anyway, at the end of that of that picture. Whereas Marie, uh, not um, um, I, I don't even know her character's name. That's how much interest I took in her. To be fair with you, Doctor Marta Shearing. Doctor Marta, there we are. Um, I don't know. I don't think that she's as compelling. She didn't certainly didn't want make me, you know, start rooting for her. Even in those moments where she's in, you know, she's in that uh, uh, she's in the laboratory and she's hiding from the gunman. You know, even in those moments, I wasn't really rooting for her. And I'm not entirely certain that on the strength of that, she would fall into any other category apart from, you know, not worst, but least best perhaps um but i think that would that would be um it's it's not it's not necessarily her performance either so i I thought she was really rather good as as from an acting perspective but i think it's just the the character maybe wasn't as rounded or maybe wasn't as developed enough um that allowed it to then you know spill out into the audience and, and, and go with it so i think she's the one that's going to get my vote there i think that's fair the most interesting aspect of that character is that she's the target of the movie versus the other ones where Jason Bourne is more the target. Yeah. That's a little interesting, but I mean, I think, look, audiences weren't weeping. They didn't get a legacy follow-up. No, no. So, you know. What are you talking about? I want <laughs> well, it. Give it I to me, Cam. Give it to me. <laughs> That's the chems talking. I need more pills. That's the chems. It's all about the chems. Um, Ashley, what have you got? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with uh, Heather Lee, played by Alicia Vikander from Jason Bourne. Oh, um, and you can argue whether or not she's actually an ally because it kind of gets revealed at the end that she's trying to like play him just like everyone else in the agency is. But she has this moment where she basically like much like Pam Landy kind of like breaks away is like this is not what I signed up for. We're doing some really evil shit and. You know, this is this is not what I believed in when I got into this type of work. And she, you know, starts aiding and assisting Bourne. Um, she's just not that interesting of a character. And honestly, I, I found her character mostly annoying throughout the entire film. And wanted to get out of every scene that she was in. And that's nothing against Alicia. She does a great job, but it's it, it was just the character. Um, and and the general overall story of that film, which I don't think particularly works. Uh, so yeah, that's my vote for for worst ally. I don't think she's given a lot to work with. I I had a split vote between both of your picks, funnily enough. Um, but I think Alicia Vikander has a stronger performance in the film. I don't think either of them are given great material. Mm. So I'm going to say, for worst, it is Rachel Weiss as Dr. Marta Shearing. Cam? I had a little bit of a split. I'm giving my vote to Heather Lee, but I did consider Nikki, who I think the series is kind of hit or miss with, where she often gets very little to do, 
and the fact that they basically just kind of repeat the uh, Marie death uh, with Nikki at the start of Jason Bourne, I think is yeah. pretty much unforgivable. So, like, in terms of treatment of a character, Nikki would probably take the prize, but I think she's memorable. When I think of the Bourne franchise, I do think of Nikki. Whereas Heather Lee, you know, Ashley, you kind of summed it up where you just have a hard time caring about that character. And I think it's because her motivations are so murky that even when you finish the movie, you're like, okay, I guess she was a helper, but also, you know, kind of wanted to manipulate him there's something interesting maybe from the angle of someone who's like a you know a millennial um cia operative Mm -hmm. you know dealing with a gen x you know uh, agent with born like there's a generational thing that's kind of interesting they could work with but it feels like the character is so lost in this sort of mess of uh, conflicting motivations that i walk out just kind of shrugging and alicia vikander great actress oscar winner not given the best of material here cam she's our people (laughs) <laughs> that's right that's whatever right. that meant um but uh well it looks like by the sounds of it dr shearing's taking it away sorry rachel vice we love you now the next sequence we have is chase scenes fights the best action moments that the Bourne franchise has to offer so i'm going to throw it to ashley first uh this this one there's so many great action scenes in this franchise, but hands down, the car chase through Russian traffic at the end of uh, end of supremacy, it is is probably the best car chase I've seen committed to film. Uh, John, earlier you were talking about like sort of like the the kind of like stepping stones um, through the stunt professionals that got up to that moment, and that car chase always seemed to me like it was. Uh, an evolution out of Ronin because mm. in that film, one of the big things they did is like, oh, okay, let's outfit these cars so that we have professional stunt driver driving from the back seat, yeah. and then we can stick De Niro in, or no, it was in the uh, in the passenger side with the yes, yeah, with the with the the stunt driver, and then we can stick Robert De Niro in the driver's seat and it looks like he's doing all the stunt driving. We can film it like that. Mm -hmm. And Supremacy takes it a step further and says, you know what? Why don't we put the stunt driver on the top of the car and then we can mount cameras all around the car and it looks like Matt Damon's alone in a car driving. And it works so good. And it's so kinetic. It's so propulsive. It's cut so rapidly that the first time you watch the scene, it's like it's hard to grasp everything that's going on. But the second time you watch it, it's just like an absolute beautiful work of art. And I'm glad you touched on John Powell's music a bit earlier, John, because like mm. especially this this track for this scene, um, which on the soundtrack is called Bim Bam, uh, Bim Bam Smash, I believe it's called. Yes, it is, yeah. It's an absolute incredible banger of a piece that I've used as a temp track way too many times when I cut action scenes. Uh, And the way that it builds, it's constantly evolving all the way up to the point where you get into the tunnel, where which point it just starts ramping up and up and up and gets more desperate and comes to this perfect kind of punctuated conclusion in my opinion it is a perfect car chase scene yeah it uh, no one no one has made a better car chase than this yet mm-hmm. hmm. it's uh I, I hadn't actually considered that one but it's actually a very good choice i might have to rethink one of my choices but okay john what have you got 
Oh, I'm, I'm in complete agreement. I think it's absolutely head and shoulders above a great deal of everything else that had gone before and probably after. You know, you, what happens afterwards is you, you get more technology, you get more chances to change stuff, and this is where it happened for real. Um, I'm not even convinced that that the um, the pod had actually been invented by then. I think they were still doing it in a slightly different way. Um, certainly with the with the later the later um, yeah Skyfall onwards 2012 time this sort of pod on the roof and the actors in the car. Um, I've got a feeling that um, some of these shots were actually of. Um, uh, dear Matt being thrown out into traffic in certain cases with a stunt guy in the car with him on camera in certain cases. So I mean, they really are pushing. Greengrass has, has got to a stage where he's going, okay, let's just let's just go with it and see how it goes. You know, the, he's been told they're right and said, you know, you can't do this. We've got to keep him safe and we've got to do this. Yeah, no, that's fine. Just push him into traffic. Um, and uh, and some of it really is just it's unbelievably good. And I, I don't believe that it's been topped, really. I think it's it's uh, it's absolute cutting edge. Um, and, and just uh, on the music there for a moment, John Powell's work throughout the, his series of films, fabulous. The difference between that and James Newton Howard on, on, on the other picture is extraordinary. It's like polar opposites. Very, very strange um, how the, the whole feel of the film does change considerably. I find it a very difficult score to listen to all the way through. There's there's the but and yet with the other the other scores, there's a number of John Powell moments where he says he just brings everything up to a certain point or gives you a theme to, to go with and it's uh, it's very lovely and I, I, I don't think he does get enough credit for that. But certainly from from the action, yes, yeah, supremacy for me, definitely that car chase is magnificent. So that's two votes for the ultimate moment of supremacy. Cam? I fought so hard with myself over this one because, like, the Tangiers chase in Ultimatum is unbelievable and maybe the most iconic sequence in the Bourne mm -hmm. franchise. It's up there. The pen fight is also up there. But um, I also had to go with the Moscow car chase and that, like, mm -hmm. people so often look at the French Connection car chase. That's the one you'll often hear filmmakers, you know, reference when it comes to car chases. Matt Reeves was talking all about it um, on the press rounds for the Batman, for example. But, like, I feel like if you ask audiences now the car chases that matter to them, French Connection is kind of the academic answer. It's the one that film buffs and, you know, critics would throw out there. But I think if you ask just random moviegoers who are really into their franchise films and their blockbusters... This car chase in Born uh, Supremacy, I think, is going to be high in their estimation. Probably the car chase in Ultimatum as well. But, like, this one in Supremacy, I remember revisiting it and being absolutely blown away at how unbelievably propulsive it was and how I was essentially on the edge of my seat throughout. And I watch a lot of action sequences. And a lot of them are very passive experiences of kind of sitting back and being like, this one's not really working. You know, a lot of Marvel action sequences can fall into that category. Yeah. But this car chase is just next level. And I, I like to think that, like, the realism of it scared the crap out of, say, like, the Bond producers. Because they were going CG and die another day. And I'd like to think it was mm -hmm. sequences like this that made them go, uh-oh, uh-oh, we need to try to up the ante in practical action and, you know, we get things like Casino Royale onwards. Certainly. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. It's interesting because I did a rewatch of all five films before we recorded this. And I was kind of like, 
not paying attention too much during Supremacy because I knew it was a good film. Um, and I was sort of on my phone. I was doing some emails. And then this car chase started up and I immediately stopped everything I was doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've just got to watch it, haven't you? Yeah, it's fixed on the screen. Uh, I would give it my vote, but it's already won. So I'm going to give it to what would have been my original vote. Okay. And that is the Tangiers chase. Right. I mean, previous guests on the show, Jerry Anser and Matt Damon, put together, uh, along with the team, of course, put together a fantastic sequence. That it's, so, it's so intense. It's a claustrophobic fight between them and the chase to get there in the first place. It's the moment I think about when I think about Bourne. It's, it's, it's also interesting that you've got the, the first part of the motorbike chase. You go, oh, okay, this is, this is, this is exciting. Right? He's gonna, it's, on, it's a motorbike. And then it's a foot chase. And it's still as exciting. Mm. You know, they, they haven't, they, it's not toned down simply on the basis that he's on foot. No, it's, as, it's, it's great because he's on foot, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's very good. Now, I, I can see why that, uh, that would get your vote, certainly. That, that, that scene is my Sophie's choice. Yeah. So it's like, if mm. it wasn't going to be the car chase from Supremacy, it was going to be that. Right. So it's like, we're, we're, it feels like we're all in full agreement about what the two best scenes from the series are. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same page. Yeah. Yep. If we could give it to both, we would. But it looks like the uh, the car chase in Supremacy is winning that. But in terms of worst, I'm going to go for the moment in Bourne Identity when Jason Bourne rides a man down a flight of stairs like a surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> I I bumped on it when I first saw it. I bumped on it again the other day. I bumped on it when me and Cam did a commentary on it on the Patreon. It's the silliest effing moment in all five films, and I have no idea why it's in it. But it makes me laugh, but it is definitely the worst moment in any of the films. And yet he carries it off like a pro, yeah. doesn't he? he? He rides that man with a plomb. I always make a reference to Red Dwarf whenever I think about that, with uh, with Ace Rimmers riding down a crocodile, but no one's ever seen Red Dwarf or listened to the show, apparently. So uh, that, that, that's my connection. But um, Cam, what about you? Worst moment? The thing with the Bourne franchise is there's not a lot of worsts. There's the ones you don't like as much, yeah. but uh, there's not a lot of like badly directed sequences or anything like that. So for mine, I went with a little bit of a jokey one, but one that like... Look, I'm a kid who grew up on 80s action movies, and when you had sort of the setup of Jason Bourne in Jason Bourne as like, I don't know, like a pit fighter or something like that, I was getting flashbacks <laughs> to Rambo 3, for example, or the various Jean-Claude Van Damme martial arts films, and it was the old one-punch KO, I get it, it's upsetting your expectations, but at the same time, I'm like, the 80s kid in me wept for that, I was like, oh, would have liked to have seen that fight. <laughs> I was waiting for him to dip his hands in toffee and an M&M. Yeah, and yeah. then into sand. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then tie that bandana around his head. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. John? Um, it's it's more of a... T- again, you, Cam hit on that there. Where you say you can't really have a worst, which is very true. I don't think there's a worst one. There is. There are moments where you go, why didn't they find some other way of filming that um and uh, in jason Bourne during the motorcycle chase it's very clear on a number of occasions that 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 um, they are leaning way too far over on the motorcycle to be going around that corner because it's on a rig um and i suppose if you've seen them after a while and you go mm, just didn't need, just why didn't somebody go don't lean so far this time we'll do it again but don't lean out so far this time so it gives the impression that they're going around a corner 
are, you know, a very tight corner, when in point of fact they're not going around a very tight corner at all. So when the actors are, are, are on the back of this uh, camera rig that's got no front wheel on this thing and it's got a thing attached to it and they're going around the streets, it's just, it's, it has, I had a moment there where I went, <gasps> you know, <laughs> apart from that, I enjoyed it enormously, but um, it's, it's one of those things that I, I can't not see, you know, you can't unsee it when you see it the first time. Your expertise is showing there, John. That's <laughs> why nobody talks to me at parties. <laughs> so what are you driving these days? Well, I've got this roll cage and I'm thinking, no, no, no. <laughs> Don't lean too far, Don't though, lean or I'll far. find you. <laughs> Ashley, what have you got? Uh, okay, I'm going to give a little bit of a controversial answer, but I'm going to back this we up. We like controversy, do it. Um, yeah. My vote is actually going to be for the car chase at the end of Born Ultimatum. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And my reasoning for this, and I think this is one of the biggest problems with the Born franchise overall, is that they will do something really good, and then they will completely repeat that beat, but do it not as good. Right. And the Born ultimatum car chase is really just kind of a repeat of the supremacy Mm -hmm. car chase but not as good all the way down to the end of and jason Bourne does this as well and i would have picked that if only that vegas ship car chase weren't so freaking spectacular and the Mm. crash into the casino at the end but all three of those car chases end in the exact same way with a vehicle being T-boned and driven forward towards an obstacle that mm. it collides into yes. and just like destructs and flies out of control in Jason Bourne. It like actually like crams up into the roof of the, of the, the casino and flies off. And this one, it's Bourne's car gets like hung up on the median and driven forward by the, by the asset until it like crashes and it it's just a repeat of the same beats it's the same thing with like the whole marine nikki thing where we're just repeating those exact same character beats but with a different character is this the um is this the 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 producers and the directors and the writers going well if it ain't broke don't change it we have to keep the same elements and and that was really good so we'll do it again is that what I that think is? it's that they know it works. I think right. they know what they want to drive to. I think it's because it's familiar, but I think the biggest problem is they don't top themselves when they do this. Mm. And so that's why the supremacy chase ends up being like, here's the gold standard. And then one movie later, they try to like, okay, we're in a different city and we've tried to mix it up with a few elements, but a lot of the particulars of how this car chase evolves and plays out just ends up being a shorter, less spectacular version of what we already saw. I mean, the moment in uh, Born Legacy where Aaron Cross shoves a quill into someone's hand was quite derivative. (laughs) (laughs) Quill. Yeah. He, he didn't, uh, he didn't go to the, uh, to the, the everyday stationery store. Uh, He went to (laughs) the oldie oldie stationery store (laughs) Um, and said, so, "What do you? Well, they have. Have you got any? I'd love to have seen that actually. I, I, if if they'd done a done a fight in the stationery store, start with pens and then people throwing hole punches at each other and ring binders and stuff. You know, go. Yes, this is <laughs> Tipex. Ah, who threw that? 
Well, that's that's what we need. We need the the prequel series that goes back to like the Victorian era <laughs> Treadstone. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think the last one we'll have in terms of best, worst, and why is a bit of a fun one. I'm going to talk about everyday object used as a weapon, which is a fun little thing that started off an identity and and popped up in every film basically since. Uh, let's go with John first. Um, I think the magazine is super. Uh, even though the pen was, um, and I've never, this is the only occasion in a movie, or, or certainly the only occasion in a movie I've never seen it repeated in everyday life. You never see that in the newspaper or read it online that a man was, you know, brutally killed with a biro, um, or, you know, sustained terrible stab wounds because of, you know, a, a sharpie. I mean, you don't see that. And yet in this movie, uh, he's holding his own against this knife, you know, in in uh, in um, identity. Um, but the magazine was was a was a different level. Oh, it's not sharp, but he's gonna he's gonna use it in the same way that he would use a piece of wood, a billiard cue, you know, something. He's still gonna give him stick for it, and then consequently, after doing all of that, then he shoves it in the toaster and burns the ha- or blows the house. Oh, it's brilliant. Absolutely wonderful. So I'm I'm uh, I'm a big fan of, and I think that should be. And would it depend on the type of magazine? You know, would you have a choice that that thing where you look at the the opponent and go, hmm, woman's own. There's just no. There's nothing in. Oh, horse and hound. Yes, here we are. That's a big thick <laughs> thing. And, and then beat seven bells out of them. You know, I think it's farmers uh, world. Farmers yeah, we world. Tractors <laughs> biweekly. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's sensational. So yeah, the magazine was a, was a really and you, I've never seen that done anywhere else. Also, uh, it may have been uh, it may have been it's probably a Jackie Chan reference somewhere in one of those Three Dragons pictures where he's picked up a magazine or something or a book or something. But uh, that's the first time I've really seen that in a mainstream picture where you know an an, an object like a magazine. Pens are right, sharp. You can maybe do something with it, but a magazine—that's that's really clever, and it's it's always stuck with me as being a very clever in- implement to use. What about you, Ashley? My favorite is going to be the uh, the book from the Tangiers Chase, when right right after he crashes in through the window and gets into a fight with the asset in the room, and at one point he grabs this book, and a book is a nice big heavy weapon to use we've seen that in movies before but he does a couple things with it that i think are incredibly effective and play so viscerally in a fight scene and the first is he takes a spine of it and basically punches his throat with the (laughs) spine of the book that's one part of it and then the other part is he puts the flat of the book against his face and then is punching the book repeatedly smashing it against the asset's face and he makes incredible use of that hardcover book and i just i think that that's such a great element to throw into that scene and i i think that was probably only topped by like john wick with the library fight yeah where they did some creative book work there yeah i i seem to recall joey answer saying in the interview we had with him that uh, that bit there knocked him for six 
Yeah, at least a couple of times because <laughs> that was Matt Damon leaning into the punches. Yeah, you, you kind of have to. That was a very tough uh, sequence to film. And I, I have to assume they were using a prop book that was like, you know, like a little yeah. bit like it was like foam. Yeah, nevertheless, exactly. if you if you if you hit somebody hard enough with it, you know, if you're not pulling a punch, which evidently uh, Matt possibly wasn't at this stage, you're still going to get the same sort of effect on the other side of that book, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. would have been a fair play to him for doing it. I get in there quite right. And there was also like a book fight in Triple X, uh, The Return of Xander Cage as well, in a scene meant to evoke uh, Born Ultimatum. So it definitely has a cast and influence. I I can't let the pen go without a vote. Um, I I mean, partially because we're speaking to Nikki Norday later this week, who gets the pen in the hand, and we talk quite extensively about the pen prop. But uh, I, I think it just sort of set the tempo for everything else. Oh, sure. So I have to go with the pen. Yeah, no, fair play. Cam? I am in the same boat. I picked the pen as well, and I think it's because I had such a visceral reaction to the shot of him pulling the pen out of his arm. I'm like, oh my yeah. god. Like, that was horrific. The magazine was also very effective. The The thing about the Bourne franchise was you found early on a lot of critics would cite, you know, the pen, the book, the uh, the magazine. Like, they became these iconic moments that people would reference. And it felt like the franchise, as it kept going, kept doing them, and people started mentioning them less and less. But those three in particular still get a lot of traction. It, it's because it, it, it's not just they stabs the pen through the hand, it's what you would expect. It's that he stabs it, like, into, like, the wrist mm-hmm. and yeah. buries it lengthwise and you just don't see that and you can almost feel it when you watch it yeah, yeah. it's like a body horror thing too yeah it's, it's quite grotesque it, it's very yeah. horror movie yeah um cam worst the worst this was tough i just i had the towel in born ultimatum at the end of the tangiers chase it's fine you know it's nice to see him use a towel in the fight but like it it doesn't hit with me the same way the ones we've all mentioned for the best did. That's fair. I think the worst for me, actually, it took a while for me to find this one, but it's actually in the last fight in Jason Bourne where they're in the sewers of Las Vegas and he beats up the asset with a saucepan. It just happened to find like just happens to find a saucepan. He's just belting the guy in the face. And I just think to myself, of all the things that are laying around in the gutters of Las Vegas, you chose to use a saucepan. There's some interesting things down in Las Vegas. Cam and I are very aware, and uh, <laughs> they're laying around too, and I probably would have used those first. International, finally, international pan fighting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Live from Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. From the MGM Grand. <laughs> Face full of saucepan. We can restage that uh, saucepan fight this summer. Sure, uh, if you want to. <laughs> at, at, at the uh, at one of the hotels, actually, using the field. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, Ashley, what have you got? I am gonna go with the uh, fire extinguisher gun in uh, Born Legacy. I considered this one that he puts together, where he drops like I can't remember what it is like a, was it a screwdriver or a nail or something like. Into yeah. into the the nozzle of a fire extinguisher, and then uses the fire extinguisher to basically like punch it out really fast, like a you know like a like a pneumatic gun and like puncture a guy, which is not uncool. It's a neat kill, 
but it is so kind of not off the cuff. And it's MacGyver. It, that's why I was going to say exactly. It's very MacGyvery. Yeah. This is something I would love to see in a MacGyver thing, but in a Jason Bourne movie, it feels like there was too much preparation that had to go into making this a tool. And that's what kind of makes it stick out like a sore thumb for me. Poor Aaron Cross. Just can't get anything right. Can't can't get he? Break. <laughs> well, not enough cams. That's the problem. <laughs> ah, John, the final vote. Well, uh, to be fair, I'm going to go with cam on this and the towel, uh, primarily because, um, all right, it's a, we've seen it before. We've seen it in a number of different fights, the way people using towels, either flicking the towels or wrapping it around people's heads and using that sort of stuff. But he didn't do anything with it afterwards. What I wanted him to do was to do the thing, dispose of the guy and mop his brow with it or do something with it. You know, just the way that Pierce did in Goldeneye, that really nice way of, I've just beaten you with this and good God, isn't it warm in here? And then mop your brow and then throw it to one side. <laughs> I think they could have written it in much better or done something much more with it. Till, or maybe it was a tea towel you know or a uh, like, like a, a special one you get on holidays you know with all the the map of ireland on it or something of that nature so you know they, they could have done something slightly different with it but uh, it's 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 a well-worked one they didn't really do anything new with it and on the strength of that well okay let's let's go with that i went to tangier and all i got was, was this lousy towel. Towel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah. Well, um, that wraps up our best, worst, and why section. If you disagree or agree with our choices, do let us know on social media. To close us off, folks, before we wrap up, firstly, I want to get everyone's rankings of the Bourne films. Um, Ashley, why don't you lead us off? Um, all right, best to worst. Um, I'm I'm honestly going to say that I think Identity is the best. Um, it may not have the best action scenes in it, and I think Paul Greengrass does a better job of setting the aesthetic of this world, but I think on a character level in and a story level, it really kind of sets the template for what it is, and you don't have the rest of the films if you don't have that core set up. And I think it does really well. It hooks really good, and it's just a fascinating still but I I did a rewatch of all the movies just, you know, leading up to this. And the movie still completely holds up. It's a great watch. Um, and then from there, I'll just rattle these off real quick. After that, I'm going to go Ultimatum. I actually think the third movie is better than the second one. Just story-wise, and that, that Tangier's chase is just so good. Um, and then Supremacy. And then Jason Bourne which is a movie I don't like very much, but I found myself enjoying it more than I remembered I did just because some of the action scenes are genuinely well done. And then last, Legacy, which I, upon rewatching this, as I got halfway through the movie, I was like, I don't remember why I didn't like this movie because I'm actually having fun with this. This is cool. I'm like rediscovering this. And then as I get towards the, back half of the movie i'm just like you remember oh god now i remember yeah. why i already stopped caring about these characters long ago and i just wanted to end already the, the chems start wearing off about the one hour and 10 minutes mark and you just i needed yeah, more you, chems that was the problem i ran out of blue then you just throw in your tangier's towel yeah at that point that's it yes uh john what about you um well i mean for me 
um, it, it, it's on the basis of, of, of enjoyability. Supremacy for me uh, as, a, as a whole thing, I think, is terrific. So that's always my favourite. Um, and then identity, I like very much. That Again, that's the origin. That's where it all started. Um, and Ultimatum and Jason Bourne and, and Legacy will be last because it's not a Matt Damon movie. And I really struggle. I, I, I'd watched Legacy. Uh, I watched them all again for the, uh, before we did this, but legacy out of the lot was the one that i really struggled with to 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 really resonate something with renner and put myself in his place and i'm just saying well there's another bloke who's done this already you know it's just this this is the other this is what happens in the other story and um it's just not not as appealing and he's he's been given you know uh, not the not the greatest script in the world so he's doing the best he can they all are but um um no i think um legacies last for me and everything everything Matt Damon is before him. I think that will be a consensus with many people mm. online uh, it's interesting I did a poll today on Twitter uh, just which is your favorite and by a landslide identity one really interesting. by a country okay. mile uh, and it actually went in release order after that it was supremacy oh. followed by ultimatum I didn't put legacy on there because I just asked about Jason Bourne films and then i think only two percent of the votes went to jason Bourne right. the film um that probably won't surprise many people no no uh, i don't think mine have changed from my rewatch uh although I, maybe the last two have swapped around somewhat but i now go two one three four five i actually think jason Bourne, despite some of its good action sequences i think it just lacks any villain whatsoever that has any lasting value or is interesting at all whereas legacy at least has a good villain and it's trying to do something slightly different with a new character. So mm. I appreciate it trying something more, whereas Jason Bourne just feels like the greatest hits. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, which is which is fine. We all love a good greatest hits album, but I just, I wanted something different. Cam, what about you? I think I have the same order as you, Scott. I think I have Supremacy, Ultimatum, Identity. And it's kind of like that central trilogy is so incredible that it, it's kind of like they kind of stand as a three and then we kind of put some space in between them and the other two so i follow it up with um legacy at number four or at uh, yeah number four and then jason Bourne in last place for me jason Bourne, it's a little bit of more of the same but it's also like you remember that amazing moment at the end of indiana jones and the last crusade when they ride off into the sunset and you're like what a way to end a trilogy. You could not end better. And then they give you Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and you're like, <laughs> when, oh, oh, what's this? oh, we, what we kind of, un yeah, we kind of undid sort of that perfect ending to do that. That's kind of how yeah. I feel about Jason Bourne. It's not as maybe egregious as a Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but I kind of look at it and go, they brought him back for that? Like, it just doesn't <laughs> feel like they were inspired. Whereas like Legacy, I go... Tony Gilroy was clearly inspired to do something kind of strange in the world of Bourne, so it's sort of an interesting offshoot movie for me. I agree. And I think the last question before we finish up today is, where do you want to see this franchise go now? I'll just throw it out to everyone if anyone has any thoughts on the matter. What would you like to see? Or is this the end for you? Do you not want to see any more Bourne? Uh... Personally, I, I'm perfectly happy with what's happened already. I don't does because again, you 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 get that um, you get the legacy treatment. 
you know you what what else can happen uh, um, uh, somebody who uh, they've come full circle born started drifting in water and was um you know brought upon the fishing ship a uh, fishing boat and at the end of the of the last movie was ended up in water you know so he's gone the full circle and anything else that comes after that is going to be a guy who can't remember where he's done or what he's doing and he's working for an agent and somebody's trying to kill him and he doesn't know who but they've got other people coming towards him are you going to do that as a tv show you're going to do it as a separate series it's been done you know since then they've other shows have gone on and done it maybe they've done it better in half hour segments or they've done it in little bits and pieces but from a from a movie point of view no i, I don't think it needs anything else once you've you know you've done it You've done it with those pictures. Let it lie. Move on to something else. I'm certainly Matt, Matt Damon's not in, not in, excited about doing anything else. So, if they are going to do it with a, with a new actor, you probably have to do it in a you know a similar sort of vein to before. And I don't see the point. I'm kind of in the same boat with this, where I don't know how you go further with this. Mm. There's there's a few different routes, and they've tried most of them already. Um, if you look at the books, they've just like continued like, oh, Jason Bourne comes out of retirement because the agency needs him for this. Yeah. It's like, well, it's not very interesting. And they kind of do that. That's what Jason Bourne is. And that movie, quite honestly, doesn't really work. Um, they tried doing the the passing the torch movie. That didn't really work. They've tried. I don't know how many people have actually seen this, but they tried doing the prequel TV series. There's a Treadstone series um, that there? was on Amazon Prime for got one season. There's like 10 episodes that are out there. It's fine, but it's, I don't know, it didn't particularly grab me. I didn't love it. So I don't know where you go with this. And the other big problem is like one of the greatest strengths about the, the Bourne trilogy, we'll just talk about the first three movies, um, is that it is centered, I mean, they're all called born for a reason is Jason born and it's all centered around his arc him trying to figure out who he is it is a very personal journey of this one character and of course this entire world gets built around this character the world of espionage CIA assets killers etc etc but it is very much centered around that conceit and once you get away from that conceit what's the appeal I'm not sure there is any. So I think once you finish that arc, it's kind of like you've you've mined what's there and everything else we've seen on the periphery. We're just like, eh, it looks like it's spinning its wheels and doesn't know what to do. And yeah. for, you know, excuse the irony of this, doesn't have an identity. Right. I, I think that the, the, the fact that it's been encapsulated in, in those group of pictures now allows a new uh, a breed of of, of uh, filmmaker to now think right what can i do now with with my my films my different characters my storylines uh the way that born took from bond now people will take from born and move forwards you know so you want it as a stepping stone going forward uh, I, I, I wouldn't want it to come back and, and, and go over old stuff again. Let's take little elements of this, and that was good in that movie. Well, let's use it. Let's use it in my picture, and let's use it in that and see how far it goes with it, you know? Doug Lyman did exactly the same thing with his stuff later down the line. Mm -hmm. I think a big part of the problem is, like, there's something very rigid about the Bourne formula, which is funny to say as people that watch James Bond movies, because you can often, 
you know, obviously pointed all the various facets of a James Bond movie, but mm. there's real shifting tones there. You know, Casino Royale does not feel like live and let die. Or, you know, Scott and I have recently been revisiting some of the classic Bonds just for the Patreon. And like the first four Connery movies feel very different from one another. There's always a, a real shakeup in terms of what these movies feel like and kind of the approaches they come at them from. Whereas the Bournes feel very monolithic in terms of their tone, in terms of the types of stories they're telling. And there's a reason they start introducing Treadstone, Blackbriar, Outcome, Larks, Iron Hand. It's like different names for the same thing because they don't have a variety. So unless they really take a hard look at the world of these novels and just find an entirely different angle to ta you know tackle this material with and maybe reboot the whole thing i don't think you can do anything more with the matt damon version of jason bourne because he's kind of a character that doesn't want to be there and you can only stretch that out for so long especially when you've completed the character arc the only thing i have to add i mean i completely agree a lot of what you all have said i think there's a there's a thread at the end of Jason Bourne, that I think was a massive missed opportunity. And I could see it as a film. And that is Jason Bourne going back into the agency and trying to work for the good of the man, of mankind. He's a patriot. He wants to help the United States. And, and, and work with the people he has fought for the last five, four films. Um, I think that's a really interesting twist. And if they had done that at the end of uh, Jason Bourne I think that would have been a lot of fun but instead you've got this like oh I was listening to you in the car Ooh, and then no, here's the Moby score there we go yeah. um, that's fine but I think that was an interesting angle and maybe and, and seeing like an older Bourne who can't fight as well anymore but you know I don't know whether it's like a handing a baton film where there's two and he's training a new person or something I don't know there's something there Bourne working for the people he's been fighting for so long now I think that's interesting I think Matt Damon has no interest in doing it anymore, so it's probably never going to happen. Mm. But there's a reason why we're here sitting talking about Bourne Identity 20 years later, because the character, the performance, the world that this was built by these professionals, these actors, these stuntmen, editors, cinematographers, directors, all of them, have created the fascinating landscape of, of spy films that we can tackle. And I don't know if it's quite dead yet. So I would like to think there's hope. Yep. There's always Fair hope. Enough. Can't argue with that. Plus, Universal needs hits. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they need the money. That's all it boils down to. It's just green. That's all mm -hmm. they're back on. Mm -hmm. Speaking of everyone, your checks are in the post. A super thing. <laughs> well, before we, uh, before we wrap up, we have some quick messages from our former guests on the Born episodes. So we'll throw to those now. And joining us now as part of our Bourne franchise celebration is Mr. David Lowbridge Ellis, licensed to queer. Welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, talking about Bourne again. Yes, well, you were our first guest ever. And talking about Bourne back then as well. Exactly. And, you know, we're here celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Bourne identity. And so. Oh, Lord, that makes me feel old. Anyway. I don't know about you, Scott. Oh, we spent a good time talking about that in today's episode. Yeah. Don't, don't worry about that. Um, but the discussion really is about sort of celebrating the Bourne franchise itself. So we have three questions for all of our former guests. Mm. The first one to you, sir, is what does the Bourne franchise mean to you? 
I I'm going to quote the end of Fight Club here. Uh, I think these film, well, paraphrase at least, these films met me at a very strange time in my life, or at least the the ones that I like. <laughs> we'll get onto my ranking in a minute. The ones that I like did. Um, so as I explored in your first ever uh, guest uh, episode, um, the Born Supremacy. I, I really connected with that film as a gay man who was struggling to come to terms with his identity. I, I very much very connected with that film in particular. And I've, as I've explored at length on your podcast and elsewhere, spying and queerness cannot be separated. It's that whole concealing who you are and am I really a good person? Um, which, you know, Jason ultimately learns that he's, maybe not a horrible person but he's at least done some things in his past which he's certainly not proud of and he's trying to atone for and that's particularly why i i love the born supremacy because it's got that whole atonement arc going on yeah i think uh, you know we did dive into that in the episode i'd urge everyone to go back and listen to it if you haven't already our born supremacy review but it's interesting like of all of our guests this one hits home for you in in that sense i think you're the only one who's had that sort of unique perspective on it and, and uh oh, it's, wow. it's good to see uh films from that sort of you know, different angles because someone could just see that scene we spoke about it that you know jason running down the beach yeah. could be meaningless mm-hmm. to someone else mm-hmm. but for you as a, a teenager i believe at the time you drew a lot from that very mm-hmm. simple no i know i'm it, i i'm older than that scott i saw um oh. how old what, when was born supremacy 2004 2004 yeah i was 22 then so <laughs> you, you yeah. don't look it sir you don't look it <laughs> thank you um well that brings me to my next question then born rankings how do you rank all five born films i'm gonna be really honest i only like two and a half of them <laughs> so <laughs> uh, i love supremacy that's head and shoulders above the rest i really like ultimatum mm-hmm. uh, i've seen that a number of times i do sort of like identity but I think it's more the concept of it rather than the actual execution. And I know that that film had a particularly tortured production history, which others might have gone into. And I think that shows on the screen. It's kind of, it's lacking in its own sort of identity, uh, if you'll excuse the pun. But it's it's kind of half art movie, half action movie. And it the two don't really cohere for me. So it's the second one which which really um, brings everything together. I really wanted to love Jason Bourne because I love the Greengrass, you know, Supremacy and Ultimatum. I really wanted to love it, but I actually got really annoyed by it as I was watching it, as I thought about it more after I watched it. I've only ever seen it once, so I can barely remember anything about it. But I just felt it was completely redundant and it was sort of treading water in a way. So I didn't like that one. And The Bourne Legacy is one of the most boring experiences I've had in the cinema that I I, I do not remember. And it's a shame because I love Jeremy Renner uh, and many of the other cast members. I just thought it was a complete waste, to be honest. Yeah, I I think uh, it was a bit of a misfire with Mr. Renner, but I don't think it falls at his feet. No, definitely not. No. No, so it sounds like you're going Supremacy Ultimatum, Identity, Born, Leg- uh, Jason Bourne, and then Born Legacy. That's the, that's right, yeah. That, that that seems to be lining up with some of our guests this week, oh, so really? that's fine indeed. Mm. Mr. John Orty, I think, was around about the same. Mm. The final question to you, sir, before you leave us and disappear like Jason Bourne into the waters, mm. where would you like to see the Bourne franchise go? I, I found a quote from Tony Gilroy, who was basically brought on to save the film, the, the first movie, and then fell out epically with Doug Ly- Ly- Lyman, Lehman, I'm still not sure how to pronounce his name. 
But uh, I think everyone fell out with Doug, though, <laughs> during the yes. course of the production of that movie, and that's why he wasn't invited back. Um, but Gilroy said to um, Lehman, Lyman, whatever, I guess your movie should be about a guy who finds the only thing he knows how to do is kill people. That's, you know, that it's not the only series or even individual film which deals with that dimension. You know, James Bond arguably deals with that to an extent as well. James Bond has never liked killing people, certainly in the novels. I wonder, though, if Bourne actually did get good at doing anything else. <laughs> so I'm not suggesting we have a whole series of uh, of movies where he learns how to do basket weaving and uh, whatever kind of other pastimes um, might be lying around. But maybe he does have some kind of normal life. Like, I, I haven't read much of the Ludlam books, but he does have a wife and, uh, you know, he's more kind of domestically um, settled and that kind of thing. So maybe if they did sort of go that angle. But again, you, I don't know I don't know how you're going to re, redo it. I don't know whether it's kind of a hard reboot and you don't bring... Uh, um, um, uh, his name's just going out of my head. Help, help, Matt Damon. <laughs> you, you don't bring Matt Damon back or you, you have somebody else because I think they're kind of scared of doing that, really. Uh, but it's certainly, yeah, I, I, I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure what story I want, really. I, I think a lot of people have trouble thinking what you, what you do next because really it did end at Ultimatum for a lot of people. And the rest of it was just a weird extension. So why bother? But they all feel a bit footnotey. Mm. The the other movies. So you know him falling off the building, and you can kind of fill in the blanks. And maybe he does sort of get that normal life, and he does learn how to. I mean, the interest could be that he, if he only knows how to kill people, what actually trying to find some kind of purpose in life beyond just surviving. I think might be an interesting way to go. But then again, that's probably a completely different story, isn't it? It's not going to be a spy action adventure movie then if he is um, learning to ride horses. and um, Actually, I suppose different environments because Bourne movies are really urban movies in lots mm -hmm. of ways. I know there's a scene in the rural farmhouse, which was something that Lyman really fought for on the first film, but they're very urban movies in lots of ways. So maybe having born in kind of a more um, rural setting, that might work. I, I just can't shake the idea now you put it in my head of him being like a sous chef in a kitchen. Yeah, yeah. Like, not the head chef, but just underneath. He doesn't want all the responsibility, no, but no, he likes no. cooking. What career, what careers could Jason Bourne, you know, it could be Jason Bourne, colon, sous chef. Jason Bourne, colon, basket weaver. Jason, yeah, you know, it could be a whole, a whole spin-off series. That sounds like a direct-to-Amazon show if I ever did hear oh, it. Oh, yeah. Well, David, I want to thank you again for joining us. This appearance now has put you at number one place for our most appearances of all time. Congratulations. Oh, wow. I will send you your trophy. I am prolific. I am ubiquitous. So Sorry. I've heard. Sorry, everyone. So I've heard. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we'll, we'll put links in the show notes below. So, uh, once again, David... Mr. License to Queer himself, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And I am joined now by Nathan from the Mission Impotable podcast. He joined us some time ago to tackle the Bourne Ultimatum with his co-host Aaron. And that was one of the most contentious, knocklist debates we ever had. It was split 50-50, so it didn't quite make the list. But Nathan, it must have felt pretty crazy to be part of that discussion. Yeah, yeah, it was a strange one to think about because I, I know you guys don't often have four guests, probably for that very reason. Mm. 
but it, it was uh i just remember how interesting the debate of like wait seriously you guys aren't gonna put it on here you and i both voted yes we were in the right right yeah i i think uh I think more of a representation of like spy cinema, but I guess if you're gonna have to pick one, it would be uh, Supremacy. Supremacy was already in. We could have added Ultimatum, come on. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think Ultimatum does everything that Supremacy does a lot better and a lot cleaner. Right, yeah, I, I think um, I was on pretty much the same page. I like Supremacy more, but I think Ultimatum deserved to be on there. But uh, as Scott's not here right now, I can say that. I like scenes of supremacy more. <laughs> just just while he's not in the room. Same with Aaron. <laughs> now, we are wrapping up the Bourne franchise as a whole. So I'm curious, you know, first question. What does the Bourne franchise mean to you personally? Um, you know what? I came into a certain realization with both uh, the first Transformers film and the original Top Gun, where I respect its contributions to cinema more than I actually like go back and revisit it as a franchise. Um, I think the first one by Doug Lyman is solid stuff. Uh, it certainly is not the uh, the huge spark that, I mean, it, it was a big hit, but it isn't the spark of like creative ingenuity that the other ones are. Right. And it, it doesn't, it isn't as responsible for a certain era of action that became often mocked and often just like the shaky cam action in the same way that I like you watch Transformers and you look at that movie and you can see the correlation between the next like decade of filmmaking as far as scale. But, you know, people are immediately quick to dismiss those movies specifically. I wouldn't say Bourne has quite that same issue, but yeah, I, I guess I go I approach this franchise as one that I've watched numerous times, usually uh, on camping trips because they're just kind of fun. You turn them on, they're over before they start, you know, they're just always moving. But I never carried on to the Renner one, like I was saying at the top of this recording when we were uh, just having a little preamble stuff. I never watched the uh, the Jason Bourne one that I, I can't remember what the text over the poster was where it's like, you will remember his name or something. It was something <laughs> that they always did. I think they literally had like the Martian poster with Matt Damon with text over him and that one on like similar marquees. Why didn't you proceed with the fourth and fifth? Like after Ultimatum, were you just like, I'm out? Did they just not appeal to you in the marketing? What was it? Like, why did you not even for completest sake finish it? I mean, I'm eventually going to thread that needle. I I think I'm trying to think of a good comparison point because uh, you know what? It's like Pirates of the Caribbean where you get to the third one and you're like, well, that's a conclusion of this franchise. I don't really need anything else. And then the, the next one is like, okay, we've gotten rid of the main characters. I can't remember if they have anybody from the I, I haven't seen Born Legacy, so I'm not sure if they have anybody else. I'm not sure if they threw in like a Brian Cox or somebody to make like a two minute appearance or something like that. There's some very, very brief cameos, but that's about it. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much the same thing, but with the fourth one, they really were trying to give you another version of the protagonist, which I consider, if we're talking Pirates of the Caribbean, like Will Turner. I felt like that arc was closed. Therefore, my relationship with the franchise was closed. And it was at a point in which they were really trying to push Renner on me. 
and I like Renner and Renner is solid, but like Renner <laughs> ghost protocol sort of proved that like Renner <laughs> isn't the person to hitch your franchise. And like within the movie, they almost cast him as the Tom Cruise role. And then they're just like, no, 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 we can, uh, we can, we can cut this back. And they literally did it with the next one where they get uh, Matt Damon back. So I was kind of like not interested in either of them. I'm like, are they trying to sell me on another decade of Bourne? Like Bourne is, he's, it, it's a perfect looped three trilogy deal. And I'm not sure if your series has made you realize like, you know what? Legacy is the second best of these movies. Or like Jason Bourne is silently rips. Um, no, I think I'm more of an apologist for Legacy, but Jason Bourne is, for me, the weakest of the group. So I can't say that that's the one that really gave, you know, kind of a uh, burst of life to that franchise going forward. And that kind of leads me into, normally this is how I close out these interviews, and I believe Scott's doing the same, but I think I'm going to jump to this question now. With Jason Bourne not really performing particularly well and seemingly ending the Bourne franchise, at least for now. Do you see a future for Jason Bourne on the big screen? Does it feel like something we could have, you know, many years down the road, the way that James Bond has endured? Or does it feel very tied to its specific time? I feel like not on the big screen. I, I hate saying like it should be a TV show because that is my like constant criticism with TV where like you'll watch like 10 episodes of a show and you'll be like, oh, this could have very easily been a movie or six episodes of like a Disney show. And you're just like, this could have easily been a movie. But I feel like there might be some juice mind for all the like Reacher fans and the Jack Ryan fans to have a Jason Bourne franchise. You're, there was there. Treadstone. I, you're forgetting the Treadstone TV yeah, show. I, I remember Treadstone. <laughs> believe me. I, they, didn't they? We talked about Taken. They did like a Taken TV show too. So yeah, they, uh -huh. they always do those. But those were more like uh similar to like how there's a starman tv show in the 80s where you're just like okay so we're just sort of doing the same thing this is like the way how tv is based off of movies the tv shows based off of movies have been received outside of like when fargo and hannibal and stuff like that i know hannibal's like a readaptation but uh i don't see a future on the big screen not because I would necessarily oppose to seeing it. I mean, it would take a lot to get me in the door. I mean, I would have to watch the next two movies and they would have to give me like a compelling, like I'm trying to think of like what director, like, oh, oh maybe get uh, Gareth Edwards who did the raid and he's doing like a an old man Jason Bourne. I don't fucking know. It does feel like it kind of begins and ends with Matt Damon. And I think that's their biggest hurdle they have. Yeah, and I don't think Damon has the same star power that like a tom cruise has right now or even like a denzel washington where like i feel like everybody feels like they got their fix of damon in those movies in his prime and damon i don't think is going to have like the physical commitment that he used to not because he needs to or anything i think he's proven himself and you know it it's just it's one of those things where a there's that where i don't think that character has as much appeal we also don't really get spy films on that level that aren't like that haven't remained consistent or like consistently inconsistent like you go see a bond movie and it sucks and you go see the next bond like bond is always going to be an evergreen franchise i just don't think we're in that era where we are making just straight up action movies as much unless they star like mark Wahlberg or denzel washington or liam neeson 
and they are just like made directly to sell all right and then go straight to Redbox for the people who find them. And I don't think those people are seeing Jason Bourne movies. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. And I think just to wrap up this interview, we're asking everyone this question as well. When you look at the Bourne franchise and you've just watched the initial trilogy, what is your favorite film? And are there any moments that jump to you as being hugely impactful that you've kind of carried with you in kind of your memory, uh, just in terms of, you know, what Bourne means? I think with, with identity, there, there are quite a few scenes that step up to me. My favorite is Ultimatum. I think I said that even in the episode. Mm. I just feel like that's where they kind of refined it and figured out like how to really... It, it's where the everything's escalating. It's kind of like a Mission Impossible movie or like any good sequel where things are just getting bigger and bigger. And um, I, I mean, the opening to Identity is just really strong as far as a hook. Uh, once you go into Supremacy, I think the car chase is specifically like a scene that really changed action filmmaking. And, and the ending of it, the idea of like, hey, we're not doing like a James Bond. He's got to deal with the weight of all of his decisions, even though like you, there's really no deep storytelling at the end of the day. He's just Wolverine without the claws and you watch it. And at any scene, you could be like, hey, I went to the bathroom. What's going on? Well, he's on the run and he figured out a new key to <laughs> tracking down and figuring out what Treadstone is. Like that entire franchise kind of functions mindlessly. I think I even said that in the recording. So... And then I'm trying to think, well, I mean, the Bourne versus Dash fight is maybe the pinnacle of all shaky cam fights. Um, there's just a lot of like visuals that stick out. It is so much more the directing. And when I think about Bourne, I just think like, wow, what a well-directed trilogy. You know, Ultimatum didn't make the knock list, but it made the NNC list for Nathan and Cam. <laughs> How long were you sitting on that? <laughs> About five seconds. Yeah, it was pretty good then. <laughs> well, thanks a bunch, buddy. This is fun. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> and we are joined by Josh from the Four Nerds by Nerds podcast. He joined us for the Born Legacy back in the day. Now, Josh, correct me if I'm wrong. When we covered that film, you were fairly new to the Born franchise, correct? Yeah, I had only seen the first one. And I've still only seen that one in this one. <laughs> okay, no, that's fascinating. I want some follow-up there because it's been, I guess, almost eh, probably close to a year. What has like what has been the roadblock? What has kept you from diving into the Bourne franchise? It's just so long. <laughs> and I, I think it's one of those things where uh, like they're not what you want, not what you want them to be. They're not what you think they're going to be. Like from the commercials, I was thinking about this earlier today. I think the the third one did phenomenally well. I remember when that came out, it like was like exploded at the box office, and when it came out on DVD, it was selling like hotcakes. And I think it's because the trailers make you think it's going to be like an action-packed thrill ride, but they're not action-packed thrill rides. There's <laughs> a lot of talking in these movies, and a lot of like I don't know, just it's. It's a lot of fancy words just to try to make you think they're intelligent, I think. So, like it gets a little it gets a little heavy and it's kinda of like Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Right. That yeah. that is a lot of talk and a very little action. <laughs> I remember we had a guest on I believe it was Nathan from Mission Impossible, uh, or Mission Impossible, I should say, 
who referred to the the Bourne movies as like um, I think smart dumb movies or something like that, where they yeah. try to give the sort of air of being very 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 smart, but are they? Uh, it's debatable. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the problem with the Bourne legacy is that they wanted to do like a fun action movie, but then while they were making it, they remembered that it's supposed to be a Bourne movie. So they're like, we got to throw in all this like espionage talk and government work and all this stuff. And it's like, that's the most boring part. Like, nobody cares about that stuff. We want to see somebody getting stabbed with a bullpen plan. <laughs> so a big part of the focus of this roundtable we're doing is to kind of look at the legacy of the Bourne franchise. And I think it's really interesting to talk to you, someone who is not like a student of Bourne, because it's very easy to ask people that are obsessed with the movies, you know, what's the legacy? And they have so many poetic things to say. But for you kind of standing on the outside, what does the Bourne franchise even mean to you in pop culture? Uh, the I think the biggest impact it's had is that it changed the world of James Bond for the better. Because James Bond was at a very boring and non-believable point, and once uh, the Bourne movies came out, and they rebooted James Bond to be like, "Oh, we gotta be more like this. We gotta be more grounded in reality and do like a lot more physical, like realistic fights." And and James Bond has to be, you know, someone who can be injured instead of this like unkillable machine. I think it cha- it took it took that entire franchise and changed it because. They, they, people started to gravitate more towards the Bourne franchise to be like, yeah, look at him. He's just a guy, but he's he he's fighting like a madman. <laughs> and you have covered Bourne Identity. You're not covered, but you've seen Bourne Identity and covered Bourne Legacy with us. Yes. When you look at those two films, which one do you regard as like your favorite of the two? Uh, I like Bourne Identity a lot. Right. But I didn't. Li- I didn't mind Legacy. Legacy. It didn't do well, and everyone like really got on it. I think just because of the lack of Matt Damon. But I. Re- I thought it was fun. I thought it kind of ended abruptly, but um, overall, I mean, the first one definitely had a much bigger impact on cinema than <laughs> the Born Legacy did. <laughs> do you have like a favorite moment from one of the ones you've watched that stands out? That first fight with the with the pen, I always bring up the ballpoint pen. Him fighting that guy, and the, he's got a knife, and he's got a pen, is just so well choreographed, and it's so it. I had never seen anything like that before, where it's like this guy is crazy. He doesn't even know he can fight, and he's gonna go at a guy with a with a big pen. <laughs> yeah, very big, uh, impactful moment there. That definitely changed up action for the years to come, especially when you look at like a John Wick film, and they're fighting with like books and stuff like that. Yeah, it really changed fight choreography and cinema altogether because I feel like everybody, everybody, every action film from then on deserves, uh, uh, should write the Born Identity a letter saying thank you for the idea because everybody changed their fight style to that sort of realistic kind of uh, close combat style of fighting. Definitely. And just our final question we're asking everyone little different for you, maybe, because a lot of the people we've talked to are, you know, students of the franchise, right? You've watched the first and then the Jeremy Renner entry. We have kind of, it seems, finished up with the Matt Damon era of Bourne films. The last one wasn't really well received. Do you see a, f- a future for this franchise? Does it seem like something of its time? Or could it be like a James Bond where, you know, 50 years from now, we're talking about more Jason Bourne films? Yeah, I mean, they could totally James Bond it and have somebody else. I mean, they do. They kind of do it with everybody. Who's who's the other one? Uh, Jack Ryan. He's been played by like seven different people. Yeah, and it's totally yeah. It's something. 
I I just think you might get a lot of backlash. People might not see the film or say the film's bad just because it ha- doesn't have Matt Damon. But I could also see them doing a Jason Bourne again and just waiting 10 years and doing another one with Matt Damon. This time he has a beard or something. <laughs> I think old Bourne could be interesting, for sure. Yeah, I'm I'm very interested to see where where they go with a lot of movies of just giving it time to breathe and seeing if they what what franchises they wind up coming back to 20 30 years from now. Well, the way IP is going these days, it's going yeah. to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely going to happen. They're out of ideas. Okay, Josh, thanks so much. We had a great time with you on Legacy and hopefully we get you back on soon. Absolutely. And joining us now, one half of the Chick Lit podcast, it is Karen. She joined us, of course, for our Jason Bourne review, the final of the five Bourne films. Firstly, Karen, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm absolutely smashing. Even better for seeing you. Oh. (laughs) Well, we are here to sort of say farewell and adieu to the Jason Bourne franchise. So we've brought all of our guests back for a couple of questions. The first question I have for you is, what is the Jason Bourne, the Bourne identity, all the Bourne films, what do they mean to you? Oh, what a good question. I was thinking about this beforehand and I like it's there's so there's so much wrapped up. I was I was a real nerdy kid. So like I didn't like the action movies that I had seen or that came out when I was a kid, like the big, like bombastic, um, you know, I'm trying to think, well, this didn't come out when I was a kid, but you know, the Indiana Jones movies or, Mm -hmm. or things like that with like crazy car chases and unrealistic stunts. And I just, I never, I never quite identified with that. Like I, I was very much like not a big action movie person. I mean, I was a kid. I was I was not really that into them. And then I think the Born Identity I'm pretty sure that I saw the Born Identity first because Ultimatum had just come out and I'd never seen any of them. And it was kind of that oh let's you know go to the family movies on the weekend. Let's go see this action movie. And uh so I watched the Born Identity and I was like, well this is something different. This is so different and new and um, interesting and it has more of a realistic bent to the way that you know the world is and then we went to see Ultimatum and I was just you know going from the first film to Ultimatum was such a, a, a shocker because of the shaky cam and, and all of that and I hadn't seen Supremacy yet so I and I just I fell in love with it I just loved <laughs> again I love learning about politics and um, you know, the way that the world works, I'm asking my mom all kinds of ridiculous questions that she has no answers to when I'm like nine or 10. And, um, I, I just, I loved just sort of seeing how the sausage is made, like at the CIA, well, how the movie industry thinks that it's made. I'm sure anyone that works at the CIA is probably like, that's not realistic. We just sit in cubicles all day and don't do anything. Um, but the, <laughs> I, I had a very, profound sense of justice as a kid too. you know, I would like write speeches about climate change and um, much to my very conservative parents chagrin. And I I think there's just such a great um, like sense of, of justice. And it's like, he's trying to do what he's trying to do to figure out who he is. But in 
that wake, he's got people using him on both sides, the people who want to cover things up and the people who want to uncover things. And I just, I don't know, it just really identified so much with that. And um, uh, just, you know, the the dressing down of a spy franchise, kind of, in, mm-hmm. in contrast. I, people always talk about it in contrast to Bond. Um, but I, yeah, that's, that's a, in a roundabout way, that that is what it means to me. It's kind of... It's kind of a new, fresh take on that we needed in the 2000s on on the spy genre. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I think and we do get in, into that in, in the chat and, and the parallels of Bond and, and how it sort of informs the spy genre going forward. I think Bourne was really a precursor to a lot of the spy films we saw afterwards. Now, the next question I have for you, and you have prepared for this, is what is your ranking? For the Bourne films, including Legacy. Oh, I agonized over this. <laughs> um, so the final, the final list that I came up with was Supremacy. This, this is top down. Uh, Supremacy, Identity, Ultimatum, Jason Bourne, Bourne Legacy. <laughs> we were so close to being the same. Oh. <laughs> Ah, oh, shame. I, I great list though. Great list. I stressed about w- where to put identity versus ultimatum, but I, I I know you're not much of a Renner fan. I'm not. I've I've come around. <laughs> me not being a Jeremy Renner fan has actually made me a lot of cool internet friends. So now it's sort of just a meme for me of like, yeah, Karen hates Jeremy Renner, but we whatever. No Renners allowed in this club. <laughs> no Renners allowed. <laughs> well, the final question before I let you go is. What do you want to see happen to the franchise now? I love this question. Okay. So we've there's a lot of born origins throughout the films. I think it would be interesting to have just one film that's actually just dedicated to that. Um so kind of what they were trying to do in Jason Bourne but not a terrible subplot in a even worse like bigger plot. Um but I think it would be really neat to kind of see the next generation of Bourne. And and again, I think they were trying to do that with Legacy, um, but it didn't quite um, land for me. <laughs> the the square didn't fit the circle. Blue pills, red pills, green pills, <laughs> chems. I, I need my chems. I'm out of my chems. Um, but yeah, I would love to see something that I sort of enjoyed um, once I had played out watching my DVDs of the Bourne series as a kid was um, the the books that followed up the trilogy, the original Robert Ludlum trilogy. Um, the They were posthumously penned by a friend of his and they are, they were really interesting. And it was sort of, I'm, you know, I'm reading them in the late 2000s, early 2010s. Um, they were sort of born for the next generation. It was, it was kind of, you know, Bourne's coming out of retirement to go take down a terrorist cell or something. And then turns out that the government was paying the terrorist cell the whole time. And the real, you know, not to spoil anything, but I, I would love to see, um, you know, a, f- a new world of Bourne. I, f- I feel like they tried so hard to do that in Jason Bourne, um, but they just didn't have enough young people on the writing staff or something. Um, or in the actors. Or, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The technology. We have the technology. Um, Tommy Lee Jones talking about reach will never get old. Is it the the reach of the app? Um, 
But yeah, seeing, I don't know, seeing Bourne dropped into a situation where he has to um, uh, combat Russian hackers and maybe he has a younger friend who's like trying to show him the ropes or so. I don't know. Like, I think I think that could be a fun, interesting thing to explore if it was done well. No, I, I actually agree. It was quite close to what my pitch was, which was, you know, to, to have him come back into the fold yeah. and try and change it from the inside to make it a force for good. Yeah. Which is where they were going with Jason Bourne and then for some reason decided to make it like a Moby playing in the background twist ending. I don't know. That a strange choice. Right. But uh, hey, yeah. Hey, ho. we had five films. Let's say we enjoyed them as they were. I'd like to see Matt Damon come back, but that sounds like it's just us. Yeah, I I personally would. Maybe not have him be the the hero of the film necessarily, but a, a couple of cameos or kind of uh, adjacent to the plot would be interesting. Adjacent. Adjacent. Born to the plot. Perfect. We have to end on that amazing note, Karen. Thank you for coming back and uh, allowing us to bid farewell to the Born franchise. Absolutely. And uh, to your co-host, I would say get some rest, Cam. You look tired. Perfect. And there you go, folks. That was our Born Roundtable. It's been a great time talking about these films uh, with the previous guests and with, of course, John and Ashley today. I want to thank you both for taking the time to sit down and chart the course of the Bourne franchise. It wasn't hard work. It was great fun. So uh, any time you ever need somebody to go, would you mind sitting down and going through these movies? Happy to help. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. This is incredibly fun. And I forgot how enthusiastic I get about these movies. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll I'll make sure to make some Tangier towels and and uh, yes. send you all a version. I, I I actually might just do that now for giggles. Um, <laughs> uh, but just before I let you both go, where can people find uh, more from yourselves? So, uh, John, you first. Um, well, my social media really is is based around uh, the, the the big three, I suppose. Twitter at uh, Stunt Central, you'll find me there, um, and uh, uh, behind the stunts on um, uh, Insta and on Facebook, and the YouTube channel. Uh, so behind the stunts on uh, type it into anywhere. The podcast comes out uh, on a Wednesday. Um, I've had a little hiatus break, but I'm back on uh, um, this Friday with a. Um, as, at time of recording, anyway, this time, this Friday with um, an episode, a discussion about Tom Cruise and uh, the uh, the the uh, controversial work in which um, many newspapers keep referring to him doing his own stunts. So I've tried to have a bit of a breakdown of his career and to put the record straight. So that's this Friday, and then next week uh, we start on the podcast on a Wednesday uh, with the, the Daniel. Craig retrospective, I suppose, of his uh, action fifteen years, uh, and then on a Friday, it's, it's so it's the you, you, uh, the podcast on the Wednesday and the YouTube show on the Friday, and we keep rotating until hell freezes over. And I do believe you have a Bond book coming out soon. Yeah, the book uh, will come out uh, dates to be finalised, but it's due to be October to coincide with the sixtieth uh, anniversary stunts. Bond stunts is the title of the book, and um, so that's a that's a look at uh, at the sixty years of the action and uh, all of the action sequences and the stunt performers and the stories behind all of that. So that's happening. And well, of course, there'll be links in the show notes below for information on all of that. Uh, Ashley, what about you? Uh, easiest place to get hold of me if you want to scream at me is on Twitter <laughs> at Ashley Lynch. 
Um, other than that, I'm just going to shout out the new season of Lego Ninjago, which I edit, which will be starting, I think, later this month um, or early next month. I'm not sure of the exact date, but coming out soon, and it's pretty epic. And also the other podcast, I'm uh, co-host, uh, Girls on Pop, which you can find at the After the Crez Network, which is atcpod.ca. And yeah, we'll put links in the show notes below. And where is Ninjago playing? Uh, it depends on where you are. I believe in US and Canada, it's on Cartoon Network. Um, elsewhere in the world, I'm not sure, but eventually it will be coming to Netflix for most people. So I'm sure I've seen it check, around here. Yeah, I'm check sure. where wherever you are that the show shows up. And it's it's different depending on what territory you're in. Well, again... John, Ashley, thank you very much for your time this evening. Your chems are in the post. Hmm. Thank you very much. Super. Great pleasure. Thank you. And there you go, folks. That was our chat. That was our roundtable on the Jason Bourne franchise. It might be the last time we ever discuss Jason Bourne on this show, unless he magically reappears from the water once again. Although, Patreon commentary. Eh? Eh? Yes, you never know, Cam. But next week... What are we talking about? Yes, we are actually going to be talking about a movie that probably took a bit of inspiration from the Bourne franchise. We are going to check in with Angelina Jolie, our first Jolie uh, entry. There's a number of films that will feature her in the future on the podcast. This is going to be the first. We're going to talk about 2010's Salt. Yeah, one I don't think I've ever actually seen, but I feel like I've seen a lot of it just through osmosis Mm. uh, and just seeing clips online. So I'm really actually looking forward to finally ticking that one off and we're joined uh, once again by m from the verbal diorama podcast who joined us last time for die another day uh, this should be a corker that's right i'm hoping to pepper you with questions that joke assaulted me Oof. Yeesh. <laughs> guys we've been at it for two and a half hours here give us a break they, the jokes <laughs> need some seasoning <laughs> well if you would love our jokes and you like what you hear on the show please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast it's completely free and it does us uh, the world of good when it comes to finding new listeners out there in the ever-growing world of podcasts and if you want to contact us discreetly of course do not forget to follow us on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but Until next week, listeners, you should get some rest. You look tired. Hello, my name is Chris Carr. I'm a filmmaker and podcaster. Join me as I take a look at the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics and organized crime on my podcast, Secrets and Spies, available on all podcast apps. This is Manna from Spy Heaven. 